Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit Amfem.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. Do you think we crashed on this place by coincidence? It's destiny. They're referring to you as the Oceanic Six. go back down the hatch to talk all about it here on the lost rewatch podcast on post show recaps it's down the hatch i'm josh wiggler i'm joined here by mike bloom and we're here because you left because you stayed really mike because you left now i'm traveling through time ethan shot me Have a real musical intro oh, to this podcast. Yeah, for, for those that are not yeah, in the know. Me. Yeah, uh, a lot of a lot of latecomers to Lost might not might say, What the hell was that? Why did you put a fan vid in? Initially f- I did too, and then I was like, Oh wait, I remember that. Oh my god. Yeah, so the promo to Lost Season Five used the phrase you found me. Uh the actual video, we'll put it in the show notes, it exists online, and what it does is it takes the phrase song you found me and like intersperses clips from the show there's really a visual component that is not obviously heard through the song but there's things like uh when you say you know uh lost insecure you found me you found me lying on the floor lying on the floor is the shot of john Locke uh when we find him in walkabout mm-hmm. as an example of like <laughs> yeah. how they really do some fantastic literal matchups whoever was editing that behind the scenes it is a piece 
of cinema verite wow. in its finest. Look so I, I feel like when we did this with season four, right? We played like the pretty, the really awesome epic promo into season four. I know it was mentioned uh, by some of our hatchlings about how much they loved the fray promo uh, into season five. So I figured, what a better way to start it. We're our own version there. of. The- yeah, we're own ver- our own version of Pierre Chang, right? We're putting a record on the turntable by the fray, and luckily this one didn't skip. Yeah, uh, no shotgun Willie to kick you off. I don't know who had that on the bingo card. We went a different way. We went with the fray. Uh, house the fray. Uh, as we're talking about the time travel season, so Mike, it's only fitting that we begin with a blast from the past. Absolutely. Uh, much, very much a blast from the past, and especially because I do feel like the fray were popular in 2007, and that's where we're going to spend a good portion of the season. At least one narrative is going to be spent in there, so we've really got to get ourselves in the mood there. Got to get in the groove there. Uh, look, folks, down the hatch, we're in season five. I don't know what else you need to hear. We're in season five. We're in the penultimate season of Lost, folks. It's cool. This is really great. Mike, it's been a minute since you and I have like talked about an episode of Lost proper because we had the mm-hmm. feedback show. We had the RPG. Uh, we recorded those uh, a relatively uh, good little while ago for you and me. Like yeah. You and I missed a full week of podcasting together about Lost. So we're getting back into it. And we're getting back into it via like the season I've been so excited to get to for so long now. Uh, this is a great time. It's a lot of fun. It's, you know... As Josh said, you know, cards up. It's been about a month since I have watched a new episode of Lost, new quote unquote, considering that once again, sure. it's an old new episode of Lost. It was great. It was like trying on a nice old pair of cowboy boots that you haven't worn in a while. How many and yeah, pairs of might... cowboy boots do you have, by the way? Oh, at least 25 uh-huh. yeah. individual cowboy boots. I lost <laughs> one along the way. Uh, but I found it. I found it. <laughs> <laughs> wow. He just found it live on the podcast. That's great. Lying on the floor. There yeah, it was. Right? Right there, where where were you? Lock. Where were you? Yeah, but but you know it, it blisters a little bit. Certainly getting back into the swing of things. <laughs> but what, in the what song? I, to, it blisters. <laughs> it blisters. And we're really getting in the minds of the fray as they were writing the song and trying to figure out what, specifically what lyrics don't work. <laughs> had a really long process <laughs> to figure it out they were in egg town for a while baby oh, the yeah, was on them. exactly uh. they were they were but they were they didn't go to shell though they they thrived as it were what i love about this episode is that it really drops you in the middle of things i mean you know this episode really sets up our dual narratives for at least the first part of the season right of everyone slowly coming back together in 2007 and everyone jumping all over the timeline on the island and it is such an invigorating exciting start that i do feel like season five gets forgotten about in the grander scheme of things i think that's part of the reason josh why you sort of beat the drum about how it really is an an underrated season and as you say maybe secretly the best season and i feel like this episode at least puts you right into that really energetic headspace where everything is propelling forward maybe at the expense of some of the more like moody or character moments that we have seen but it is still thrilling and i think picks right back up from that pulse pounding stuff we saw in the season four finale yeah well it's interesting that you say uh it puts you in the the energetic headspace because uh pierre chang is going to advise you to keep your head out of that energy it's also interesting to me that you say that it kind of drops you in the middle because one of the things that this season does so beautifully is um, this this first sequence that we'll talk about here is basically you know the ending of the season 
so like mm. you know we're we're with Pierre Chang. I I'm pretty sure that uh, that we're on the day of the incident. That the incident is going to occur that day. That like Faraday is gonna like uh, he's gonna come to Pierre Chang. He's gonna freak out. He's gonna go with Jack and and Kate. Uh, he's gonna get shot by his mom. And then Jack is gonna go and uh, you know get the the warhead with Saeed, and they're gonna do the whole thing. I'm pretty sure that's all one one same day. Um, mm. So there is this. Uh, we talked about this with the season four finale. This like this this feeling of the snake eating its own tail, uh, and that's season five of Lost. Uh, it, mm-hmm. You know, we begin here with the like it's 8:15 in the morning in the day leading up to this incredibly important event that's going to change the lives of uh certainly everybody on the island but if you you know really buy into the stakes of the show then a very fateful day for the world writ large um so it's great i think watching season five when you know it relatively well certainly when you like know the ending of the show you know the the general shape of the of the season the shape of things to come you know you can really appreciate it at a at a different level and for me season five always just hits a little bit better the more i watch it because there's just there's Mm -hmm. so many components to it um that feed off of each other and and build into each other and i just appreciate the degree of difficulty involved in mapping a lot of these time travel storylines together. Not to say that it's without like its wonkiness here and there. It certainly has like, you know, we could, we could get into like, wait, you needed everybody on the plane. And then like, they just like like you know, like there's certain things that like, you just kind of have to let go uh, much as, (laughs) Jack is constantly being advised to do. Yeah, Josh, you're the boon right now Mm -hmm. being like, you're going to have to let me go. Yeah, you know, I think that there's some things that you do just want to let go. Um, But for some people, I think it's hard. And I understand that I am uh, hypocritical. Because because it's hard. There are are things from season four that I had a hard time uh, letting go. But I think if you're able to like sort of just get on board with the ride in season five, it's a really, really, really great time. So I'm excited to uh to hop into it of course mike this is the first um episode recap that people could be listening to a little bit earlier than Ooh, usual yeah. speaking of time travel you're sort of like uh you're gonna be you have the opportunity to be ben and Locke looking at richard albert and Locke as he mm-hmm. fixes his his leg like you get to look on a past version yes. of what's to come yes there's a time travel component here to down the hatch now as we are releasing episodes of down the hatch early to patrons of post show recaps patrons of post show recaps will be getting the podcast anywhere from two to three days early. Uh, If you are a a lost down the hatch fanatic and you just want to get those episodes as quickly as humanly possible, some good incentive to sign up at the podcast uh, feed level. That's $5 a month. That buys you into so many different bonus podcasts, uh, whether they're shows that we are doing very specifically originally for the patrons of Posha Recaps, like Posha Recaps Theater, where Emily Fox and I every week talk about a different movie with different guests. Very, very stupid and very fun. Or the Mighty Ducks podcast that Kevin Mahadeo and Melissa Woodward are doing. We're 
or Dungeons and Dragons at Discord. There's so many podcasts, but you also now, in addition to those original shows, you'll be getting down the hatch a few days early. So a really fun incentive, especially if you are a Lost fan, consider signing up at that $5 level, patreon.com slash postshow. Recaps, if that's not enough incentive to sign up right now, we've got a stretch goal that we're looking at. We want to cross 500 patrons of postshow recaps by the end of May. If we do that, we are going to launch in the main feed of postshow recaps a 24 season one recap podcast, which would start in June. Um, This indeed, Mike, what I'm saying right now, it is possible may be dated uh, because Mm. uh, due to time travel, when this podcast drops in the main down the hatch feed, uh, call me confident, but I feel like we're getting pretty close uh, to the okay, point confident to the point <laughs> the confidence man uh, to the point that I think that maybe we've crossed it. And if we've crossed it, if we've crossed 500 patients at this point, uh, just check out patreon.com slash post show recaps, because maybe we've got some additional reasons that we want to keep driving that number up this month. Maybe we're offering some weird stuff. So you may want to get on board. This may be a great time to do it. This is my first month going full-time podcaster. We would appreciate the the support. $5 a month. Not a huge ask. If you're able to afford it, you're getting a lot lot of bang for your buck. So that's the spiel. Patreon.com slash postshowrecaps. I will will leave it there. Um, Mike Bloom, I don't know. Uh, Do you have any final thoughts that you want to get into before... We do this before we like <laughs> before we spin that frozen donkey wheel and start bleeding out of our noses as we start talking about I don't know the 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 penultimate season premiere of Lost the second to last ever season premiere of Lost that we're gonna get. I mean, I love how you say again in true time travel fashion, like, yeah, do you want to give any final thoughts right at the beginning mm-hmm. of the podcast? It's it's very exciting to get into. I've, I mentioned this before, but it sort of rehash my. Thoughts about the season at the very beginning of the podcast. Season five, at least in my memory, which is spotty at best, is one that I probably have the toughest time remembering individual episodes. I think that is to a credit of season five, because I do feel like unlike the season that came before it, this one very much has the most straightforward, cohesive narrative that definitely has fewer of those episodes as you mentioned of like well this one sticks out as a super clunker but everything else around it is good like everything is at least super solid in season five what that unfortunately results in from my perspective i know friend of the podcast riley has written in about this as well is that i often get a little confused as to what happens in what episodes Mm -hmm. especially in this first batch of season five when they're doing all this stuff off the island with eloise hawking and getting everyone together it's tough for me to sort of parse out okay this was the episode where this happens etc etc i might have to go into friends parlance and use the the one with to describe the episodes a little bit better if i don't remember the titles but one of the many reasons why i'm excited to explore season five especially this first stretch is to hopefully gain some recognition and because you left is going to be known as like the episode where they start trying time traveling essentially yeah. and it's, it's 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 such a magnanimous shift we talked about this shift already sort of occurring by the end of season four, but the definitive move that they make here in season five is just a large, large game changer for the show at large. And again, your mileage may vary depending on what you came to the show for, but it is so much fun and I'm so excited to get into it for at least this first part of the season. All right. I mean, I don't know what else I've got. I love a good time travel story. 
the the prospect of writing a good time travel story is very aspirational for me as a creative. Mm. It's something I hope to do someday before I die. Uh, I, I mean, I don't know. How, be Was hard. It a power broker show? It up? would be. It would be hard to do after I die. Uh, time travel, unless yeah. you went back in time uh, and wrote it before you yeah, died. It's possible. Uh, but it is the stuff that, like, I, I don't know. I, I find it to be electrifying, certainly electromagnetic. Uh, and season five of Lost has been like very informative for me in terms of like how you can like use time travel to negotiate ideas uh, that are so central to Lost and therefore so central to mm-hmm. life, like destiny, fate, free will, choice. Uh, you know, the tragedy of inevitability uh, or sometimes the triumph of inevitability, uh, the whatever happened, happened of it all. I think these are like very fascinating ideas. And can I fix it? Can I change it? Can I go and do something differently? I don't care that it's a road. Can't I build another road? That metaphor, by the way, from Faraday does need a little bit of work, I think. Uh, well, we'll talk, we'll we'll talk about there. it. I, I think he, he aces it on the record. I'm going to give him like a nice C plus on for the, maybe on the, the street streets, metaphor. Yeah, streets behind, maybe, on the streets metaphor. Um, but it's just, I don't know, this season. And I know that there are certainly people, I feel like we've gone over this of like, what if the show had ended in season five? Like, isn't it a perfect way? Like you just like you, you, you hit the nuclear bomb. It splashes to white. You're left uh, wondering what if that's the ending of the show? Um, or did I, they just blow themselves up in the 70s? Yeah, I think that that would probably be pretty unsatisfying, especially because of everything that's going on um, with uh, with the Ben and Man in <laughs> yeah, Black. Like, well, and, and then Locke was evil and he conquered the world. The end. Yeah, that's lost. I, I, think I think you do need that final season as flawed as it is, uh, as, you know, as complicated as it is. Um, but this is like, this is the last season of Lost that I love without reservation, with no reservations. <laughs> uh, so I am, I'm really hyped to get into it not just because of the time travel stuff but because of because of that because of the of the, the ben and the lock stuff because of the jack stuff um i think that this is a really great season with like the, the 2007 off island story that builds up towards 316 like i think um like now that we're really getting to spend time with the oceanic six after they left and like getting to like, you know, now we know like slices of their headspace. We know enough of what happened to them after they left the Island. Yeah. We know who they are now that we're really located with them. Yeah. And it's great. So, uh, yeah, I, I'm just, I'm really, really excited about this season. I'm really pumped to get into it. Why don't we, why don't we begin Mike Bloom? We go forth into the jungle because you left directed by Stephen Williams, written by Lindelof and Cuse. It originally aired January 21st, 2009. And it centers on no one yeah this is i believe the first ever lost episode to not feature any flash mechanics i mean there are many white flashes that occur but there are no flashbacks no flash forwards i know that the band behind the curtain sent us some info that apparently when it was initially conceived and written it was going to be centric to jack and Locke. i'm very excited that they didn't do that because again they want to show how much the game has changed that he's changed the rules, he being David Lindelof and Carlton Cuse as one when it comes to loss. And so not focusing on any character specific past or present is great because we are hopping around everyone's past or present. Some other unconventionality lies in the air dates, because again, people who didn't watch this at the time and were not, you know, uh, serenaded by the fray might not know that i think for the first time in lost history we had a double episode night 
Uh, this aired, as you said, January 21st, 2009. And next week's episode, The Lie, aired right after this one. Yeah. Uh, so they did it as a doubleheader. We're not doing that. Um, just for sanity. I'll, I'll be intrigued by the end of next week if we'll think about them as a product of, okay, do they flow better together? Do they work better as separate episodes? Because I do think this is an incredibly strong outing. I'll be intrigued to think about it as, okay, if it, if it gets followed up by The Lie, how does that work? I think The Lie is a slightly weaker episode, but I think that I, I, I've said this, I think most of season five's episodes are of like a fairly consistent quality. Right. Uh, like I think I think that it's just such a strong season across the board that like your weakest episodes are not um will be in the threes at the worst. Uh, yeah, we're not, I don't I don't think we're plumbing the bottom five this season. I will make that bold claim I, right now. I can now. absolutely imagine the scenario where there are a couple of episodes that like rake the low threes for you. Like I could see a 3.0 even from from like a Mike Bloom rating perspective, like knowing, a Mike Bloom type rating perspective. Yeah, like knowing knowing your rubric and stuff and I think like totally fair within your rubric, but I would be astonished if it ever dipped lower than that and I think that if it ever got to a flat 3 um, I would be like slightly surprised by that, but not like completely blindsided. Um, all right, let's do this. We begin at eight fifteen in the morning in nineteen seventy seven. Enter seven seven, baby. It's it's strange. I would love to hear if anybody sets their alarm for any quarter hour marks. Yeah. You do? Yeah, every now and then, for sure. Um, Why? But I'm a weird person to talk to about this stuff. Uh, I like to set my alarm for 8.15. Uh, I do like I do like a 7.30, an 8, and an 8.15. And the 8.15 is like the hard stop. You gotta be up. Gotta be oh, up. I thought it was just a lost thing. Like, oh, I have to wake up at 8.15 well, every morning. That's why it's there instead of 8.30. It is, it is losty. Uh, so I, I do like that time. Um, but I don't think that Pierre Chang necessarily has that excuse, right? Of like... Well, it's a lost number, uh, so I should <laughs> yeah, set it exactly. to eight fifteen. Don't be absurd. They they're still building the thing that has the number stamped onto it, right? Uh, Hurley's not there yet to put the numbers in. Yeah. Uh, so I just always think it's weird. I actually, I, I mean, would I'm love guilty to hear of it. Pierre Chang just admonish you for like making fun of him for waking up at eight fifteen. Mike, don't be absurd. People wake up at eight fifteen, Mike. Well, so that and that's the thing is that you know we talk about how Lost is the show with the worst daddies uh, who have who are like good people maybe on the outside like a Christian Shepherd but like objectively a bad parent. We have the rare exception here in Pierre Cheng, who seems to be a pretty damn good father to baby Miles, but is a searing a hole uh-huh. outside <laughs> of his familial life. Yeah. As we'll get into in this first scene, yeah, he's crotchety for sure. I mean, I don't know how much I want to give him Daddy of the Year awards here. Well, no, that go that goes to KDK every day. He's waking up. He's you know feeding the baby. He's listening to some music. He's showering. again. No, I, again, I, th- I think when he's in his home, he's a very good father. It's just for whatever reason. When he gets up and like goes to work, he just becomes this like this diva. He's cranky. I mean, he shouldn't be that cranky if he's sleeping until this is probably the least realistic part, right? He's sleeping till eight fifteen a.m. and he's got a young child. He's got an infant. Yeah, well, it's interesting because you would imagine if you're waking up at eight fifteen, like that, this baby has probably woken up a few times over the course of the night. Especially someone as young as baby Miles, it seems. I would imagine he was like at least six months old 
perhaps it looks like i'm not good at judging uh cinematic babies but yeah you'd imagine <laughs> that that this baby is not exactly getting like it's he's not sleep trained yeah. yet he's not on a heavy rem though maybe i don't know maybe this baby miles is like aaron and sleeps for like 18 hours a day and so just slept straight through the night and pierre chain got a full rem cycle in i feel like it's a shame that you have not found yourself in a position yet to judge cinematic babies <laughs> yeah not yet at least yeah. uh, i'm not i know that we we had you know the lovely feedback during our feedback show of like uh the person's wife right who's a labor delivery nurse and talks about all their gripes when it comes to cinematic babies i have yet to trot into that territory I feel like unfortunately. that would be a great uh web show uh mike Bloom, cinematic babies uh judging cinematic babies you could as listen as long as they're not adult I was babies gonna say, I'm fine. yeah as long as they're not like uh yeah they're not in the you all everybody's mode uh, but you would be a harsh critic, though. You'd be like a very fair judge uh, because you, you know, you've got very strong. Th- uh, maybe actually, you would be a bad judge because you've got an anti-adult baby bias. Yeah, my my, my thumb, my whole hands on the scale yeah, in that regard. But I mean, maybe maybe I'm already positioned to judge cinematic babies as they are because. We'll, we'll get into it later. Uh, I, I am not thrilled that they started giving Aaron lines in this mm. season. Well, he doesn't have a lot. Don't worry about it. They're both, but most of his lines are, I'm tired. Or, where yeah, are we exactly. going, Mom? Uh, that's basically it. Uh, I'm sleepy. That's basically Aaron's <laughs> yeah, contribution. So that's that's it's like this kid is just like snarkoleptic. <laughs> effectively Aaron's contribution to everything. Uh, we'll get there. But, what, you know, we're, we're beginning with Pierre Chang. It's another one of these, like, all right, let's, let's start in a way that's going to, like, discombobulate the viewer a little bit. What's your down the hatch? What's your going to New Otherton? Um What's your like bursting through the through the mangoes into a car chase in the future with Hurley? In the case of season five, it's beginning in 1977. Uh, for the first time, I'm uh, tracking. It gives new meaning to enter seven uh, seven. Mm. That here we are entering 1977. Right, and, and he's actually going to be doing an an, uh, an unfinished orientation video for the Arrow, which does talk about the hostiles, right? Which is why you should enter seven seven in the first exactly. place. Exactly. So I think that that's. Uh, I got to imagine uh, that uh, we're we're later to that than uh, many other people <laughs> uh, in the Lost fandom. Yeah, I mean listen speaking of, of late comings i think it just took me this time to notice that you know as uh, as pierre chang decides to saunter on over to put on some willie nelson before he tends to his child that the record does indeed skip mm-hmm. which i think is a fun call forward to what we're going to be experiencing it's also a nice take on again we've been th- we've been through this before two times prior uh you know character we don't really know up until this point wakes up goes about their daily routines in a very like mundane homey type of setting puts on some music and then the big twist happens what i think is very fun about this is unlike desmond and unlike juliet at this time we I wouldn't say we know Pierre Chang on an intimate level, but we at least know this guy, right? He is a familiar face. And so as soon as we see him, we know something's up. We don't have to wait until the camera pans up the hatch or wait until Juliet sees A15, you know, exploding above her. As soon as we see him and we see Dharmaville, we know, oh, okay, this is exactly where we are. Yeah. 100%. Hundred percent. So we're doing an orientation video. It's a it's the orientation film for the Arrow, which is about developing defensive strategies. You want to go inside of this basement, this very barren basement, and just yeah. Whatever you do, don't let it get derelict and decrepit. Yeah. Don't make it stick out from all the other. It should be noted here. Maybe again, Pierre Cheng hasn't had his coffee this morning, which explains not only his irascible attitude, 
but his wardrobe choice, because he is, oddly enough, wearing the jacket with the insignia for the Swan Station when talking about uh, the arrow. He's sleepy. He's groggy, for sure. His best work is behind him already at this point in time. <laughs> so this is what, like, his, he's uh, he's sort of Tarantinoing it right now. He's like, I have to only make eight Dharma videos, yeah. and so I'm, I'm almost done I'm right almost now. I'm almost done. I'm almost done. Uh, no matter what, I'm retiring after this next one. Just gotta do the arrow. Gotta get through the arrow. <laughs> Alright, can you pan down to my feet, yeah. please, director, yeah. and just show that the entire time. Just wiggle your big toe. Uh, so someone runs in and says, we've got a problem at the Orchid, which of course we know is time travel station. Uh, it's the center of the universe as far as that stuff goes here on Lost. So Marvin Candle, a.k.a. Pierre Chang, is going to go to the Orchid uh, and he is going to discover some shenanigans are afoot. Why don't we listen in? Sound number one. <laughs> Foot. Over here. We were cutting through the rocks right on your specs. That's when the drill melted. The drill melted? Yeah, yeah. Three meters from the margin line on the plans. We went through six carbon drill bits and the last one just fried. Then my operator starts grabbing his head and freaking out. the wall. There's an open chamber about 20 meters in, behind the rock. There's something in there. And the only way to get to it is to lay charges here and here. Blast through and Under take no circumstances. This station is being built here because of its proximity to what we believe to be an almost limitless energy. And that energy, once we can harness it correctly, it's going to allow us to manipulate time. Okay, so what? We're going to go back and kill Hitler? Don't be absurd. There are rules. Rules that can't be broken. So what do you want me to do? You're going to do nothing. If you drill even one centimeter further, you risk releasing that energy. If that were to happen... God help us all. Watch yourself! Sorry, sir. It won't happen again. Did you hear that? Time travel. How stupid is that guy I think we are? It's Faraday. It's Daniel Faraday. He's there. He goes, actually, I think you're kind of stupid. <laughs> it sort of has like that uh, cockeyed look. Uh, it's a great scene. It does really just like set up the circular nature of season five. Um, yep. Beginning here, you know, on the final day of Daniel Faraday's life, no less um, in this moment. Yeah. And then also, I love the choice to have him be the one to focus on. Because I think on paper, you'd be like, oh, it's. Daniel Faraday, you think coming into it, oh, it'd be more meaningful to see like Sawyer down there or Jin. But really, this is going to be 
Daniel Faraday's finest hour from the very beginning, Mm -hmm. uh, to the point where I would not be surprised, Josh, if Daniel Faraday becomes the MVP by season's end, because he is going to be really our guide through the first half of the season, especially. And this is really his playground at the moment. I've always loved the musicality with which Pierre Chang says, don't be absurd. Don't be absurd. Yeah, I love that line as well. Uh, I also loved when he said, God help us all. And I'm like, who's Saul? Yeah, and well, Saul is one of the guys, and they're like, I'm not going to help you. Yeah, I'm not, I can't do anything about this. You told me not to you drill. That's all I know how to do. God you help brought- us, Saul. Well, what am I supposed to do? I'm supposed to drill. I'm supposed to not drill. You, you told me not to drill. That's all I know. I'm all drill Saul. Who you know me. Saul, Saul Foreman, not Saul Goodman. <laughs> no, I saw, I'm the Foreman down here. Saul Foreman. But all I know how to do is drill. All I know how to do is drill. You tell me not to drill. You say if I drill, then we all die. And if I don't drill, then how do I help? I'm so foreman. I'm, I'm the driller. I'm the drill guy. But now you're telling God to help me. My hands are tied here, Mister Chang. So I'm what not am I sure supposed what to, to do, do, Pierre? Don't call me Pierre. Listen, and don't mind me. I'm just drilling I'm into sorry, questions because Doctor Chang. It's a little hard to keep track of your names. Are you Marvin? Are you Pierre? I just have one name. It's Saul. It's Saul. I'm the drill guy. I drill. Saul Foreman, yeah, the drill man. You tell me not to drill. I try to drill. You say don't do this. You then tell me to help us all. I'm Saul. So, so you're, you're going to go back and kill Hitler? Do you say drill Did Hitler? you say drill Hitler? I said kill, not drill. Shot, oh, not shot. Uh, okay, all right. Because I, I could drill Hitler if you really want oh, me man. to. So uh, needless to say, all five MVP points this week are going to Saul Drillman. <laughs> Saul Drillman. <laughs> uh, it is a great scene, Mike. I love I love the opening of season five so much. It's 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 just so much fun because again you think that you are thrown for one loop but like that loops almost in a bigger loop at the same time. I don't know how that works from a geometry perspective, but you say okay we're back in the seventies. This is fun. We just got introduced to the frozen donkey wheel and now we're sort of seeing it in the big scan of the wall. So now we're seeing it being discovered. It's also a fun fact right now. We see that this is much more a natural artifact, something uh, not man-made as Daniel Faraday will say, we'll find out in season six, the, uh, the origin story at least of the frozen donkey wheel. But we know that the Dharma initiative happened upon it, but then seeing a familiar face there again, at this point, we have no idea where people who were on the Island went to. This is a very clear indicator that at some point they are going to go back to at least the seventies. Right. Um, by the way, I would like to take this opportunity because we're we're touching on it that this you know stuff that's not man made and uh, what's the deal with the frozen donkey wheel? How did this get there? You know, we find out the origins. How did of this, this get made? We find we find out the answer at least to some extent. As much as you find out an answer in Across the Sea in season six, much maligned episode towards the end of the show, the antsy penultimate episode of Lost. Um, we've said this before. Um, but maybe not to the degree that, or at least like it, it, it bears repeating the closer and closer we're getting to it. I've, yeah, we're one season I've, away. I've been saying since the start of down the hatch that one of the things that happened for me when I did my last lost rewatch before down the hatch that inspired doing down the hatch, uh, as a podcast was that I decided to watch across the sea as the first episode of season six, I unplugged it from its place in the normal airing order. I watched across the sea as like a season six prologue. Then I watched the rest of season six and went straight from the candidate into what they died for. You know, there's no across the sea to watch at that point. Cause I've already watched it and the season just flowed so much better. That's absolutely how we're going to do it on down the hatch. I know it's a full season away at this point, 
But when we get there, and I'm saying this for the people who are doing like their binge watches, I just can't recommend it enough. It works mm. so much better this way. Watch Across the Sea at the start of season six. We are going to get to the season five finale at some point. Then we're going to do the season five feedback special. And then we're going into Across the Sea to kick off season six. That's how it's going to work on Down the Hatch. I want to be explicit about this. Shouldn't come as a surprise. This shouldn't be a shock. Shock. I said shock. This is what we're doing. I've said it from the jump. Want to reiterate it now as we are getting closer to that. So a uh, very early preemptive programming note on that. I mean, it's a, it's a slim 16 weeks away. I mean, remember how much we flew through season four? We're going to be here before we know it. Before you know it. Um, all right. So Daniel Faraday, he is in 1977. And now so much of the rest of the season is going to be about like how <laughs> how yeah. did that happen even in the first few episodes right when they're jumping around everywhere it's like okay we know that there's a landing point it's actually very similar to again the mechanism that the flash forwards utilize through season four right of okay we know the end point how the heck do they get there that's going to be sort of the mini arc of this group that's on the island through the first part of season five yeah for sure okay uh so let's go you know we hit the lost title card when we come back we are uh we're still at Hoff's Drawler, the funeral parlor, Jack Shepard, freshly recruited by Benjamin Linus. We have just learned that John Locke is dead. Uh, and we need to know a little bit more. Let's find out from the source, sound number two. Why don't you close that up now, Jack? Come on, let's get him in the van. It's out back. Where are we taking him? We'll worry about that once we pick up Hugo. Hurley is locked away in a mental institution. Which should make recruiting him considerably easier than the rest of your friends. They're not my friends anymore. Well, that's the spirit. How did we get here? How did all this happen? It happened because you left, Jack. Now let's get started, shall we? And that that last sound is Jack he shaving. He said the name of the episode. Though technically speaking, we talked about this. The island left them. Yeah. You know, they wanted to come back, but the island left them. It's more so that Jack should be saying because you left to John Locke. Sure, but uh, that being said, I think a lot of this is, you know, Benjamin Linus doing his guilt thing, right? Mm -hmm, you know, at mm -hmm. this point, he's uh, he's trying to get Jack to feel as actively bad as humanly possible so that he uh, that he uh, obeys and uh, abides by all of Ben's rules. Uh, you know, Ben really wants Jack in his pocket uh, by selling him on this because you left the idea. He's doing that. I do also think though, that there is, um, you know, there's the question of like, where does the show's philosophy stand on this? Like, is all of this happening because Jack left because the oceanic six left? Did they make a mistake? I would, I would, I would I can imagine the interpretation where like people are like, yeah, that's what the show believes, right? That the show believes that these guys made a mistake that they have to fix. But I think that the whatever happened happened stuff, um, which is so central to the themes of this season, mm -hmm. at least for me, make it relatively clear that there was no changing what happened. So like, right. 
them leaving is just part of the journey. It only ends once, as Jacob will say. Uh, everything before that is progress. So the shame that Jack feels for leaving the island, whether he left the island or the island left him, the shame that he feels over the current lot in life that he's um, he's uh, you know found himself. Um, I don't think that this is like it's it's not a thing where like the show is admonishing him. I think if anything, the show is saying like this is how it's meant to be. It's destiny. It's all about the notions yep. of destiny. Well, I think to that point again, compare Jack to someone like John Locke, who has certainly felt that as well. That he thought that okay, he had to undergo all of these hardships in his life because there there was that pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, and so. To that point, I think that these events were necessary from a character perspective, because I think off-island, Jack specifically is very much going through the don't know what you've got till it's gone right. of it all, right? Of, oh, I spent so long trying to get off the island, and then I left the island, and my whole life has fallen apart. I desperately want to go back. We have to go back, in fact. Uh, I think that that's a really pointed step in Jack's journey. If he doesn't leave the island screw the plot stuff from a character perspective that doesn't occur. He does not become imbued with Lockean principles if he doesn't leave the Island. So I totally agree. I, I think it's less so about, Oh, you have to go back to, to, you know, save everyone's life. I think it's more so like, okay, you have to go back because you have taken this step in your life. You tried something, you realize that what was important to you was the Island, which is going to be the final message of the show period. Right. And you have to sort of go through those struggles to realize what has become most meaningful to you in your life. Yeah. You've got work to do, you know, like that's definitely, you know, that's definitely part of the text of the show is like, you've got, you've got work to do. There's more still here to, uh, to, to, to overcome. There's more to achieve, but the, the guilt that's associated with it, the shame, like, uh, as long as you're living in that, you're always going to be living in the, haha, the past, um, you'll always be living out of time. So I think that like these ideas are not coincidental. And I think Benjamin Linus being the guy who's like, you know, it's very Ben the way that he filters this. And it's no coincidence. I think that he's somebody who's like unable to move on in the end is that like he's being manipulative here uh, is one read. And another read is he really believes this. Like this is all happening because you left. I told you not to, I told you not to go. I told you that the people on that boat were bad. I told you to go the other way. You didn't listen to me. And in fact, you beat the crap out of me. And then all this happened. My daughter's dead because of you. You know, all of this stuff that Ben will look for anybody to blame other than himself uh, to, to hold accountable other than himself, you know? Um, so I, I don't see this when he says like, it's because you left. I don't think it's the show admonishing Jack. I think it's a character. Yeah admonishing jack i think it's characters admonishing jack including jack himself admonishing himself uh and i think that that all plays really richly into the ultimate thematics of the show i mean yeah we we have heard a line previously about benjamin linus of like basically never trust anything he says to anyone so why should we trust that he says right now that yes the verifiable reason why all this is happening is because you left the island. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's a typical Benjamin Linus thing, though he's going to at least not only get Jack on his side, Josh, but get him to finally shave the beard. Yes, he gets him to shave the beard. They're at the motel. He's shaving the beard. Jack, motel. Jack like still looks really out of it. 
You know, he's he's not sober at this moment in time. He's no, because remember, he was just pulling over his car, like, bin, you know, pounding grunge music, just sort of drunkenly stumbling into Hoff's drawler to go ruminate over Locke's coffin. And now Ben's like, great, you're going to work for me now. He's still trying to, to get his eggs all in one basket here. Right. So he's obviously having a hard time uh, in this moment still. He wants to know, like, how are we going to do this? How do we pull this off? Uh, and Ben's like, well, we'll get Hurley, then we'll get Son and Saeed and Kate, and Jack does not know how we're going to pull this off. He just doesn't see it happening, uh, certainly with Kate. Um, he's still fixated on Locke, and thankfully the show now allows him to say the man's name. Uh, yes. So he's able to ask Ben, when was the last yeah, time Yeah, we, we, we got that a few times, right? Mm-hmm. They're sort of making up for the finale by being like, oh, Jeremy Bentham, oh, you mean John Locke? Yeah, because we could say it now. Uh, he asked Ben, when was the last time he saw Locke, and Ben lies. Uh, he says it was mm-hmm. on the island, um, and, and so does the uh, I guess the editors do too, right? Because this is also a scene where we get a little bit of previously on. Uh, it's interesting because the previously on for the episode for the episode entirely focuses on just like the plight of the Oceanic Six. Doesn't talk about the on island stuff whatsoever. Well, I and think so we, rightfully so because they have a previously on built into the into exactly, the episode. Yeah, that's, that's what I was about to say. Now we get sort of like this montage, almost like someone was making a Frey music video <laughs> where it's like, uh, oh, this is the last conversation that Ben and Locke had. Again, as you said, we'll find out in the life and death of Jeremy Bentham. That was not their last conversation. Uh, maybe their last good conversation that didn't end with one of them dying. But then we also get, you know, Ben asked Jack, oh, Locke, talk to you. What did he say? And now we get flashes of, oh, here's Sawyer and Juliet. Jack's going to mention them by name. He said that basically all these people are doomed to die because you left the island. So uh, it's it's smart too because this this is such a complicated season, um, like narratively, uh, like the the balls up in the air that they have to juggle are really significant. There've been a couple of really great interviews with Damon Lindelof recently in some of mm-hmm. our fellow Lost podcasts in the Lost podcast. Yeah, space. shout out to the Hatch uh, to the Hatch, which I haven't listened to that interview with Damon yet, but I listened to the one that Joanna Robinson did with Damon on the storm. Uh, and he was just like talking about like how much of like the nosebleeds required to like narratively <laughs> get this right, because it's so hard to like, uh, like tie everything up and like make everything make sense. And it's like a Jenga tower and you move one thing and it's now loose, but how do you keep it up? Um, and I, I think that like in this episode, you really needed to like uh, establish where just about everybody is not quite everybody, but almost everybody notably absent Claire Littleton. Yeah. Um, and then we'll talk about that later yeah. on, right? Like, oh, is everyone accounted for? Yes, except Locke. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. conspicuously absent Claire. Um, so I think, like, to do this as an episode that is not just only, it's not only unstuck in time, but it's also unstuck in centricity is a really smart storytelling, uh, you know, from uh, decision from a structural standpoint. Um, but I think that uh, in in doing that, like, you have to find a way to get us to cleanly track what is happening now off Island versus what was happening then on Island. And when is that taking place? So to have this sort of like montage that then gets us to the three years earlier, I think at least for me, I'm able to track it. I I imagine this may still have been tricky for uh, uh, many people who were watching the show that like, what everything we see that happens on the island for the characters happened three full years prior to everything that's happening with Jack and the 2007 crew, even though it's also happening 
30 years earlier or 400 right, exactly. years earlier or two years earlier or whatever it is because they're hopping all over the island. Yeah, or or in the future as well, right? right. We're going to go to in the future in this episode as well. So it's, it's tough. You couldn't even use the lower third. They had to use it sparingly here. But it's a good check-in also as the last time we saw these characters. Granted, the last time we didn't see John Locke was necessarily him saying goodbye to Ben. But it's a good reset as to them saying, hey... This is how we, the characters, and we, the audience, saw these characters last time, and we're about to get updated to them. It's a really nice transition to say, hey, here's who they, how, how they were, where they were, now here's sort of like when they were, and how they transitioned right from where we left things off on island. I agree that I think there is no clean way to delineate between 2007 and the on island stuff again even using those lower thirds would be way too confusing so i think you just have to utilize editorial tricks like this to really get people in that mindset of that was then this is now yeah for sure it's lunchtime at tim hortons and we're serving up a special deal just for you our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours. Like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Horton's new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply. So we get to see a bunch of that stuff. Sky's turning purple. And suddenly, like, John Locke, who's been with the others, is alone. And it's raining. And John Locke, who has come to the others, ready to lead them, ready to seize his destiny, ready for the moment that he has fought his entire life for, once again, Lucy takes the football and Charlie kicks dead air. Uh, Yeah, you know, but... But I do think that there is a little bit of sweetness to the bitterness because maybe it's more so ironic than it is sweet. But John Locke is abandoned by the others and is left in the middle of the jungle with nothing but his knife and his wits. He finally found his walkabout after all these years. I guess. I mean, I don't know that he'll take it as uh, as much comfort. Uh, but he's he seems really out of it, right? Like, I think, like, that's the thing for me that's so fascinating is there's this contrast with John Locke, who, like, you last saw him sort of... I mean, obviously, you saw him last. We saw him. He was dead. Uh, but before that, in the coffin... Um, on the island, we see him like on the rise of the hill, looking down at his people before yes. the island disappeared, ready to lead them to the promised land. Uh, and now he's separated from them. And I think um, not accidentally, he's in the pouring rain. Um, and John Locke sort of made himself known to us as an audience, as this mystic man, by being able to like not just he would bask in the rain, relish the rain. He could predict the rain. He could call it. He knew the Island that well, but he didn't see this coming and he doesn't feel good. He feels unsettled. He feels out of rhythm with the situation. And I think that that is, uh, we're already in the tragedy of the end of John Locke, that his, Mm. his final like days of life are really uncomfortable. Um, there, there are some moments of victory for him. Uh, there are still some moments where he feels sort of like sturdily and steadily himself. 
Right. I mean, he's, he's going to be the one to, to put everything back to normal, relatively speaking. Well, he'll also like, you know, he'll have his moment with Richard Alperl, but go visit me. You know, like he's still yeah. able to like, kind of be John he'll, he'll wrap his head around it by the end, by the time he leaves the island. But in, thi- but in this moment, he's he's really struggle bussing. Uh, and I, I think that that contrast with him like struggle bussing here um, when it's pouring rain, which is typically John's element, I think is just mm-hmm. uh, such a great contrast. Well, let's bring up uh, another unique element from this as we start to get into the flashes and who or who may not may jump, because I know a lot of people ask this, including Dave Baker. Why did the others not jump with John Locke? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, there's there's some people who like this matters for and then some people who it doesn't. I don't know that the show ever gives a great answer to this question. Yeah, I mean, I think you could say that it's more so for, okay, the island shows these specific people to jump for whatever reason. Maybe it's more so that the others have become almost synonymous with the scenery of the island, that it's like, okay, this tree, Michael won't jump, so therefore the others won't jump. Or it could just be a, well, John Locke was meant to go on this journey because he's supposed to go back and push the frozen donkey wheel, but other number three, Aldo, wasn't supposed to, so we're going to keep him in 2004 at the moment. Right. I think that it would have been, I don't know, I I think that I may have liked it more if the Gawkers didn't skip through time. Right, just to get killed an episode later. Yeah, like maybe they could have been scooped up by the others for season six and they're integrated at that point. Um, maybe would have made more sense to me, but I don't know. This is one of those things that for me, like I kind of have to go with it. Like I, you know, like uh, it's very unsettling the things that stay and the things that don't uh, more like the people that stay and the things that go, uh, mm-hmm. I think is, is, is really like powerfully weighed upon the characters who are, who are left behind, including Neil Frogert. You see him. Oh uh, yeah. He, well, he so he wasn't in there before, right? I do believe uh, Aleve Steve was in there, but I think he gets replaced by Frogert, unfortunately. Though I think we're T minus what, like one episode before Frogert goes down in a, in a hail of flaming uh, arrows. He's awful. Even just like seeing him here, I'm just so annoyed. Yeah, I'm just looking back at like God. We got to rank that lower on the the missing pieces list. I know. Well, I mean, to your point about pieces that move and don't, though, I do think that say what you want to about the others in general, but I'm happy that Richard Alpert didn't move because i think he represents a really fun to use like an inception word a totem he sort of is like the weight that is anchoring through every portion of time that not only is going to tie in very nicely with john locke but also this thing of okay no matter what richard albert's always going to be there right he doesn't need to make his own time travel trip because he essentially is time all in one person at the moment yeah uh so he uh, faraday's in his element i think that that's the thing is like john locke is not but daniel faraday is the mystic man uh this week so we'll get into him in in a minute um at the beach sawyer and juliet both are like what's going on where's the freighter freighter's gone there was smoke billowing and now suddenly it's gone and Juliet's like where's the helicopter so it goes is that the freighter uh, yeah so and, and but also the freighter's gone because there's no more black smoke right. uh and there i guess there are no more mini monsters either in that regard uh, they're off alas, island alas uh they think uh they, they think something is up but they're not quite sure they will quickly become sure as uh the dentist, the good doctor, Bernard Nadler will come running out of the jungle. And like, this is almost like it's, it's, this is like the psychological crash of Oceanic 815. Like what's happening to the survivors here is almost, almost scarier 
It's a hard reboot, yeah. essentially, of Lost. Yeah, yeah. Dan. He's our physicist. Listen, we have no time. I need you to take me something man-made, something that was built, any kind of a landmark. There's a Dharma station 15 minutes from here. I mean the hatch? The one we blew up? That's perfect. We should get moving before it happens again, okay? Before what happens again? Why is our camp gone? The camp isn't gone. Hasn't been built yet. Hey, uh, Bernard, as a dentist, I know you're pretty good with the drill. You're pretty good with the drill, but have you met me, Saul Drillman? I don't think so. I'm pretty good with the drill myself. You're playing with jacks, and I got the jackhammer. And they also, they sometimes do call me Mr. Thirsty, because I get out there, I work up a sweat, I drink a lot of water as I'm drilling. Yeah. I drink a lot of water, but the water is made up entirely of drill bits. It's mostly drill bits stuck in the water that I'm drinking. <laughs> I, I, eat, I consume drills Listen, and I excrete drills. Vegas can't be choosers. You, just, you know the drill, <laughs> Bernard. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's, my, that's an old Saulism. Yeah, that's what they call me, Saul. Uh, so Bernard is like, where is everything? It's gone. It's gone. And Fairness like, it's not gone. It hasn't been built yet. I... Uh, always felt so terrible this is horrifying yeah i mean essentially like they spent the entire first season barely living on an island and now they're back to square one with no leader in sight it's so scary it's so scary what a scary thing like this really does feel like um you know there isn't a plane on fire there isn't like you know a wreckage from a plane crash on the beach but that's the scary part there's no plane crash wreckage. None of it's here. Yeah, that's the point. There's no, there's no wreckage Where around here. Where did it all go? Where's everything? And it's so like, where's our pantry? We worked so hard on our pantry. Uh, and, I, and I love the fact that it gets brought up here, but Sawyer has not met Daniel Faraday until this point. No. The two have never crossed paths, mm. surprisingly. Because remember, Sawyer was with Locke's camp entirely until everything happened with the shape of things to come. And then he was with Claire and Miles and you know, like they never crossed paths whatsoever. So it's one of those things of, Oh yeah, you two are in the main cast, but you've never actually met before. Yeah. Yeah. So it's cool. And their energies together, uh, really fun. Uh, we'll, we'll have a lot of that to enjoy over the next couple of episodes, but it's really good in this one too. Sawyer's a great person to, you know, Hurley obviously later in the season is going to be another person to like reset the time travel rules with, but I think yeah. Sawyer's a great version of that because he is, uh, 
you know, he's Mr. Pop Culture as well. Like, he's obviously like super well read. He loves storytelling. Uh, he loves stories. He loves books. Uh, I think like he's somebody who understands like a con. So he's good at like procedural stuff. Yeah. And, but it's also fun because he's sort of like, especially in the absence of Hurley, he's sort of our yeah, audience analog. Exactly. Like he's, he's, he's our layman of like, now let me get this straight. Yeah. What the hell's going on here? It's, it's again, it's not exactly what the entire audience is thinking, but he's definitely the character who is, as we'll talk about later in a later clip, not afraid to outwardly say, I have no idea what the hell is going exactly, on right now. Exactly. But he's, you know, he's somebody who is always going to, uh, if not successfully, he's always going to try to adapt to a situation pretty quickly. So, so he's a great character to sort of like lead the normies through the time travel shtick. Uh, so it's, it's great. This is a, a really great moment of, uh, starting to tease, like what the hell is going on? The record is skipping. Um, yeah, I mean this, this on Island stuff is, it is like chef's top kiss. tier. Chef, in chef's my opinion. kiss. I agree. Uh, meanwhile, in 2007, um, Kate's making coffee, Aaron's watching tunes, and oh my god, here come these total idiots. Uh, Dan Norton. Norton and Agostino. Uh, I'm Dan Norton of Norton and Agostino. And Agostino, this dingbat, as Miles might call him, doesn't say a word. He's just lurking in the background. Is, was, I, was, that, was that Agostini, though, or was that just like one of his? Like he says, it's just my associate. I don't even say it's not yeah, my partner. I'm, I assume he's like, I'm Dan Norton. This is my associate, Agostino. <laughs> it's like, I gotta imagine that's Agostino. I don't know. I wonder if Agostini is, is he more of like a silent partner? Like Norton does all the talking. Agostini is like, yeah, I'll just throw money at you. You go do the bad things. But yeah, unfortunately, this is not the last time we're going to see Dan Norton in his stupid face in season oh, five. I, oh, God, I hate him. I hate it. Norton and Agostino, Agostini. I hate, I hate them. I hate them so much. Uh, I hate these guys so much. I got to be honest. I just don't like them at all. Before we even get there, though, I do have a quick question about the cartoon that Aaron is watching. I mean, I guess good on Aaron for really being a hipster and reaching back to like public domain cartoons of the, the early forties or so. I was confused because there's a, a train and one of Aaron's, you know, mm, beautiful lines is like, yeah, choo choo goes in the tunnel. And Kate says, Oh, if, if the choo choo goes into the tunnel, he's never coming back out. Yeah. What? Yeah. That's terrifying. But what? If Why? Choo-choo goes Why? In the tunnel, he's never coming back out. Why are you saying that? I think it's this because is... it's the show trying to tell us that Kate's not cut out for this. Like <laughs> <laughs> it being like, oh, I remembered my days on the train yards. Those trains went in those tunnels, but they never came back. It's out like again. one this of those is... like scary things that she like didn't mean to slip, but she's so tired that she just like said it to the kid, and now the kid is going to be like. Why don't you two come out of the train? <laughs> I don't know. Like this is this is a difference between like Kate Austin, bad mother, and like Wednesday Adams yeah. as a mother, right? Oh, like taking well, July in the train. The tunnel, he'll never come back out. Why, mommy? Well, <laughs> the train died. Well, the train, so. the train died, sweetheart. Uh, <laughs> say bye bye to the train, baby. Uh, yeah, that's funny. I hadn't really ever thought about that, but it is very strange. Uh, so they've got this court order. They need a freaking Norton. We need a blood sample, Kate. We're trying to figure it out. And so she's freaked out now. This is like the moment she always thought was coming. She goes, she gets the gun, she packs the bag. Mm-hmm. Well, she's we- got, she just she just has like an envelope of cash, right? That I guess she she liquidated the Oceanic Settlement a bit and just decided to hoard some money for it's a rainy her, day. Yeah, it's her, you know, she's a professional fugitive. She knows how mm. to have a plan. I think that this is like, she hoped she'd never have to do this, but she was ready to go in case. So she's got uh, she's got her to-go kit ready to go. She assembles it, and it says, 
Where are we going, mommy? I really don't like when uh, <laughs> when you do that voice. I know I'm not I'm not I'm not uh, primed to, I'm to judge cinematic babies, but <laughs> I'm quoting the character. He says, "Where are we going, mommy?" Oh, it's boy. what he well, let says, me, Mike. Well, let, let me let me, let me I'll do a different more. voice. You ready? This is my new Aaron impression. Where are we going, mommy? Okay, that's better. Yeah. It's a little more seductive, I'm, but I'm, I'm fine I, with it. I'm tired, mom. Mom, why Choo Choo going tr- tunnel? Yeah, why is my voice starting to sound like Saul the Drillman? Oh my god, he's Saul Drillman the entire time. He traveled yeah. back with them and became Saul Drillman. I'm going to pay more attention to the fact that uh, as Kate leaves the house, he she does have a picture of Aaron and Jack still on the desk. She's the, well, canonically, she's in love with Jack, right? So... So she's still keeping that wound nice and open, I yeah, would say. Because yeah. I would say the events of Something Nice Back Home probably took place considerably before all this happened. Yeah, I think that's right. So uh, I'm not sure. Maybe she just hasn't cleared it. She's still holding out some measure of hope or she just likes the picture of Aaron. I don't know. Um, <laughs> she just like put a picture over Jack's face. Yeah, of Choo Choo, the train. Uh, <laughs> oh, oh, Aaron, I remember when you took that photo with Choo Choo. He yeah, never came back never out of that out, tunnel. In a way, she probably thinks that's right. Uh, so they go, they they leave the they leave the house back on the island. Uh, we're starting to to learn a little bit more about what's going on. We get a really great Sawyer line here. So good, in fact, I would, I would love to hear it. Why don't we play sound number four? Excuse me, I'm gonna need the two of you to pick up the pace, okay? Thanks. First things first. Give me your shirt. My shirt? Yeah. I really think we have far more pressing matters than me giving you a shirt. How about we just keep moving, okay? How about we call a timeout so you can tell us what the hell's going on? How about you trust me? Trust you? I don't know you. You really do not have time for me to try to explain. You have no idea how difficult that would be for me to try to explain this, this phenomenon, to a quantum physicist. That would be difficult. So for me to try to explain whatever's happening... Oi! What the bloody hell do you think you're doing? Shut it, Ginger. You're getting one, too. Now talk. The island. Think of the island like a record spinning on a turntable. Only now, that record is skipping. Whatever Ben Linus did down at the Orchid Station, I think it may have dislodged us. Dislodged us from what? Time. So that's why our camp is gone. Because the island is moving through time? Yeah, either the island is or we are. What? And it's just as likely that we are moving, your people and us. And everyone in your group, you're all accounted for, right? Not everyone. Lock. So apparently, according to the audio commentary for this episode, because uh, Lindelof and Cuse in writing this episode initially had the whole record metaphor actually later on in the episode, much, much later, even after the whole street thing. And they apparently reshot the scene and then added it earlier in the episode because the producers felt that viewers would be less confused if they got that explanation up at the top. Uh, very much the correct decision. Yeah, in my I opinion. Agree. I I think while we we love a good mystery, 
on Lost, I do feel like it maybe would have been a bridge too far if we had done too much time jumping without some sort of remedial explanation for it. Yeah, I think it's it's important to get the rules, at least. Uh, and, like, the rules are complicated, so we're going to need to get them a bunch of times. And the cool thing about it, though, is that much like a loop, uh, you know, finding all these different ways to reset the rules... It could be fun. It could be fun. Mm -hmm. You know, we love a good circle. The circle is great, Mike. Uh, Circle, (laughs) explain to me time travel. Uh, Message? It's like a record. (laughs) Hashtag skipping always. Record emojis. Upset face emoji. Nosebleed emoji. Uh, Give me your shirt emoji. Uh, Like, I I think like there are a lot of fun ways that the show does this this season to like kind of reset the rules for us. So, yeah, give it to us early because we're going to need it a few times. Um, I think it is a, a very, very strong choice to uh, to give us that information. Sawyer asking Faraday for his shirt is so funny to me. Would yeah, not have it would not have fit. No, it definitely wouldn't have. Like Daniel Faraday loves to wear those skinny ties and slim fitting shirts as well. I, I don't know. I think Sawyer would have been like looking like Bruce Banner by the end of it. Luckily, he will find a shirt. It's not going to be too much of Josh Holloway wandering around shirtless for most of the season, much to people's chagrin. But I love specifically the phrasing, first things first, give me your give shirt. Because Faraday's shirt. like, pick up the pace, like, no, 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 hold on. First, give me the clothes off your back right now, person I just met. Yes, because Sawyer's running around the jungle butt shirtless. Uh, and he's having a hard time with that. It's very cold and probably I mean, some be- of these better that than barefoot, though, than had to, he had to go through in the brig. I suppose. I suppose that's true. Oh, is he not barefoot right now? I'm, I don't know if he kicked I, off his I shoes when he was back. I think he's barefoot. I would imagine he's barefoot. We can go I don't back know. We, I know that Desmond lost his shoes when he was leaving the helicopter. I don't know if Sawyer did, too. Desmond hates shoes anyway. That dude loves barefoot. Uh... So, yeah, we're getting those rules. Sawyer's gonna say not everyone's accounted for. He's thinking of Locke. I know that we have people who are like, what about Claire? Well, she's not a series regular this season, so there's yeah, nothing really to think about, folks. Yeah, so the, the behind-the-scenes stuff is that, for one reason or another, uh, Emily Durabin did not make an iota of an appearance in season five. I don't other know, is than, that... Um, uh, uh, archival footage that they repurposed yeah. for the show, yeah. Right, they they walted her, but do we, do we know at this point, was it just, was it her, was it them, they just didn't find a use for Claire in season five with all the time travel shenanigans? Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I feel like that there was a story to tell here with Claire that they just, for whatever reason, didn't do. I think, like, maybe, like, so that, like, it hits a little harder when she shows up in the final season and she's... Uh, so different than we last saw her that she's like so troubled. She's been so uh, like viciously manipulated by the man in black um, that like maybe they think like having a full season off from her makes that land harder. And I think to a degree it, it, it does, but it lands in the way that it does because the execution of it is not great. Um, yeah. But I think it had potential to land really hard if they had executed it better. Right. I think it doesn't help that the way we leave Claire is kind of, soft it certainly is spooky the way that she's working with quote-unquote christian shepherd by the end of season four but it's not like a oh my god what happened to claire it's actually a very fun mirroring of rosen bernard who we're gonna say goodbye to actually fairly soon but they're gonna pop up in the incident as sort of being like hey we've just been hanging around the entire time we're gonna get a similar type of origin from claire but it's much more nefarious considering the company that she's keeping yeah that's a long time from now but we we will get there um 
All right, elsewhere in the jungle, John Locke, he's climbing up. He's trying to figure out what's going on. It's a beautiful day on the island. Yeah, is, is this a new hill? I don't remember this, like, particular long-grassed hill I feel like we've it, been there before. I feel like if the camera just, like, cranes to the right a little bit, you see, like, all the hotels on Waikiki Beach. <laughs> yeah, do you think they just went into, like, the courtyard <laughs> at the hotel they were staying in? Like, I feel like, yeah, I feel like it's not far off from just, like, the strip. Um, but there, here comes the plane. The plane shows up. It's the Beechcraft. Uh, it's Beechcraft. Yeah, and now Locke is going to do what he couldn't do before and actually climb the damn wall yeah. to get to it. And he doesn't get fully booned, but he also does indeed fall. He does fall. Uh, he's going to, he's going to like climb the vines. He's calling, he's calling out. He starts getting shot at. He, get, he gets shot in the leg. Uh, but yeah, we're, this is the beginning of a lot of leg trauma for John Locke. Like, between this and him falling down the well that's going to cause him to essentially be bandaged up for the rest of his mortal existence. It's not a great season for John Locke. Like you said, he was on top, but now he's going to come crashing down. There's also a small moment that I personally noticed. Maybe it's because the Jim Fells video points out that this episode uses a lot of instances of Locke's theme from, like, Walkabout and from Deus Ex Machina, which makes sense because this is about his connection to the island. But at least my read is that there's a moment where Locke is lying there where he legitimately believes he might be paralyzed again. And that's a big moment, right? Because that was the last time that happened was in Deus Ex Machina when he was questioning his fate to the island. And the argument is that as a result, the island took away the ability that they imbued him with to begin with. Could that be a symbol to him of like, I have no idea what's going on. Is the island punishing me? Is that represented by the fact that I can no longer walk again? Yeah, I think that like he's he has a lot associated with that feeling of being like dropped on his ass, right? Like he Mm -hmm. has a lot of bad feeling wrapped up in um, that you know we we joke but like the the you're in egg town baby go to shell you know yolks on you that like he gets pushed onto the eggshells and it hurts bad uh so like anytime he wipes out i think like his immediate thing is gonna be like it did did the island take it away again am i have i lost it all again uh i think because yeah, like, he's lost his people uh, and now he's lost in time, it would make sense that that's sort of like the rule of threes. He's also lost the very thing that the island has given him to begin with. Yeah, certainly that fear, I think, is uh, is is very valid for John. Um, so he, at this point, uh, is getting shot. He's like down like in like the defensive position as Ethan Rom comes out to inspect the plane crash and inspect John Locke. Uh, and Locke goes, Ethan, I know who you are. Uh, I'm your leader now. How are you alive? He's yeah. Like, who L- are you? Locke rolls like a critical one on his deception check here, right? Yeah. He's like, uh, oh, yeah, Ethan, I don't know how you're alive, but I'm your leader. Uh, don't take me to your leader because I'm your leader. And Ethan sees right through it. I don't know. We got a lot of questions about Ethan's behavior, both in this moment and and then seemingly his inability to recognize John Locke when he's going to meet him however many years from now. Yeah, uh, for whatever reason, like, this stuff is, uh, he's not, he's, we never get to really see Ethan's perspective on John Locke, so it's certainly possible that, like, among the reasons why he was so interested in boar hunting with John was because he's like, you're the guy. 
You know, like you're the guy I saw disappear because that's what happens. John Locke disappears right in front of him. Yeah. I mean, I could also see where suffice it to say, Ethan is a little unhinged. Uh, I can imagine that maybe for one reason or another, there there's certain personalities that might come out or certain memories he decides to displace. He might have just like completely forgotten the name as well and chalked it up to like, here's Looney Man who lands on the island. Because remember, I think Ethan believes that John Locke was from the plane that just crashed. And so he's he's sort of seen through his claim as BS of you're not my leader. You just came from this plane. So I'm going to have to shoot you. I know that Av said that Ethan's behavior makes no sense. You stumble upon a man who appears to have crash landed in the jungle, who somehow knows who Ben Linus is and claims that Ben has appointed him in the new leader of the others. And he's prepared to shoot him on sight. Maybe bring him in for some questioning first. I agree from a logistics perspective, but I could also understand Ethan specifically feeling like I am Ben's sort of like attack dog at this moment. I am loyal to the soil for Benjamin Linus. That means if anyone looks suspicious, I'm going to kill him instantly. Yeah, I think that that tracks. I think like Ethan is Ben's guy uh, in many ways. So uh, much like sort of like Mikhail is a, is a Ben loyalist. I think Ethan is too. Um, all right. So the time skip occurs again. Sky lights up. John is somewhere else. Uh, everybody, it's nighttime. Uh, when are we? Uh, Faraday says, well, it's either the past or the future. Very helpful. It's the future. Yeah, they are in the future. Uh, so we will, we will explore that in a little bit. We'll also explore, uh, the future that is 2007, even though complicatedly, this is the past past. now from the moment that Sawyer is in. (laughs) Yeah, we're in London, England as Sun is. So I guess Sun is, seems to be really taking advantage of that, like, oceanic flight service for life for right sure. she's she's specifically taking oceanic back from her confrontation with winmore something i didn't notice last time is they have a shot where they scan sun's passport if you pause it you can very clearly see a windows desktop with photoshop open mm. with sun's photo in it so they didn't even try to like hide the program they said we opened up this photoshop file on this computer and just filmed it for a shot in the show whatever you know uh, no i just think it's funny of like uh, oh yeah like oh yeah sun's passport just shows up on photoshop the natural passport <laughs> scanning software that's not what you use uh, i don't know maybe uh sun is gonna get uh like escorted to a private room here at the airport uh basically charles widmore flexing that he's able to do this he shows up it's like you showed me no respect i will be respected i pee in front of lesser men than you son yes so uh he wants to know more because she came by at the end of season four she said we've got common interests tell me more about that and sun says our common interest is that we both want to kill ben linus and so the biggest deal with that, I think, for us is, uh, as an audience, is that, like, well, the tension of season five right now is Ben tells Jack that we have to assemble everybody in order to go back to the island. And if Sun doesn't want to go and, in fact, wants to kill Benjamin Linus, it's going to make this a challenge. Yeah, I don't know. I'm I'm a little lukewarm on the slow feeding we have got on the sun and Winmore stuff so far like the confrontation in, in the finale was fine definitely didn't hold a marvin candle to sun confronting mr pake in his last scene and taking over the company this is arguably little- the worst scene of the episode i think you could make yeah. you could certainly make the arguments like this or or like the kate scene earlier but i think the kate scene is probably better yeah, I mean, the, listen, that has cartoon choo-choo. What does this have? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Nothing like that. That's yeah. his cartoon plane, maybe. Uh, yeah, yeah I, I think it's I think it's largely 
superfluous and it's more so a mandatory hey we want to show all of our main cast at least showing up so far in the season so let's do a brief check-in with sun see what's going on introduce charles winmore as the continuing big bad presence but i do feel like in the larger scheme of the episode it's sort of a nothing burger yeah i think that that's totally fair i think that that's fine it's- speaking of burgers let's uh mm-hmm. let's get some yeah let's go get some chow uh so ben is watching the tv we find out that hurley is a reported murder suspect who has es- escaped from santa rosa that's gonna uh make getting hurley a little bit of a challenge I guess that's because there was the guy outside who was in the car that was dead and Hurley's missing. So now everyone just thinks that he did it. Cool. Yeah, there's no middleman, uh, former Iraqi Republican guard, now assassin, who is connecting the two right now. Uh, so Syed's got some chicken for Hurley. Uh, Syed's not interested in eating. Hurley says, maybe if you ate chicken instead of killing people, you'd feel better. If I had a nickel every time I told someone that. <laughs> oh, my God. Um, so Saeed and Hurley, they're they're together. They're a great crew for this episode. I think the two of them together, um, you know, Saeed is still like, uh, he's like, I's not taking risks anymore. Bentham's mm-hmm. dead. They're like, just say the name. Say John Oh, Locke. just you mean John Locke, the bald man, who mm-hmm. we spend a considerable amount of time on the island with. But yeah, basically, this is also when Saeed comes clean about the fact that he was working for Ben. I love Hurley being like, oh, wait, he's on our side now. Yeah, yeah, I think that's good. He's on our side. He's like, no, if you see him, run as far away as possible. And I think, Mike, to your point of like these episodes airing in a single night, maybe this makes the lie a little uh, uh, hit a little bit better because that's what Hurley will do when he sees Ben towards the end right. of the lie. He's just going to run in the total other direction. Yeah, that's true. That's a, that's a fun connector. I think this, the Saeed Hurley stuff is a fun run through these episodes, right? We will get to the, the throne hot pocket of it all. But for now, we've got a nice little born identity experience mm-hmm. on Lost, because Saeed's going to notice that uh, much like a chaperone on a seventh grade overnight field trip, the, the clear tape is broken on the door, which means someone's a knocking. Yeah, he knows. It's like, uh-oh. Uh, people are doing it. Uh, so he gets into a fight. This is a really great fight. This is one of my favorite Saeed Jarrah fight scenes. Uh, it's incredibly impressive because he's outnumbered, what, like three to one, two to one? One guy, he just straight up bodies over the balcony. That's so great. Like, yeah, the guy like comes out with the trank gun and uh, Saeed does like two moves and then the guy goes flying. We'll say Saeed has just defaulted to killing these people. They literally have trank guns. They're trying to take them alive. Listen, if he had some, if he had some more chicken, maybe he would have missed with his yeah, bullets. That's what yeah. I'm saying. But yeah, he does. So he does get tranked here. Yet still being he gets double tranked, Mike. He gets tranked in the shoulder and tranked in the neck. Uh, and he's still able to pull the like, uh, like the like the sleeping prisoner. Uh, and the guy gets too close, and he's able to skewer him with some dirty dishwasher knife. Yeah, this is redonkulous. What a, what a groody way to die. <laughs> yeah, a dirty-ass knife with, like, uh, I don't know, like, hummus all over it. It's, like, <laughs> it smeared on your back I'm now. pretty sure that was Baba Ganoush, but... Yeah, exactly. Poor eggplant all over it. It's eggplant town, baby, yeah. and, the, and it's the Baba Ganoush is on you. Oh, my yeah, God. It's badass, though. I mean, I would imagine... Yeah, whoever had been renting this uh, hotel room before i think wasn't like thoroughly washing their dishes before sticking it in the dishwasher it was just like the crusty dirty like marinara sauce and crusted silverware well i think it's saeed because i think isn't it like he's back at the safe house oh uh, uh, sure yeah, so maybe it could have been saeed that was like sort of squatting there for the moment being and then i would imagine because i know we got a lot of questions about like 
what kind of psychopath leaves their knives blade side up when you're washing the dishes? Saeed Jarrah would absolutely do that because Saeed Jarrah predicts a situation exactly like this, yeah, right? Of like, if, his, I ever, uh, if I ever get accosted in this facility, I will simply kick someone and have them die by my Baba Ganoush infested knife. Yeah, yes, with my, uh, my ranch dressing covered spoons. Uh, my, <laughs> my slightly caked from grapefruit juice grapefruit spoons sticking Oh, that's up. funny. Then the grapefruit juice like seeps into his open cut and just makes it burn that oh, worse. Oh, terrible way to go. A terrible way to go. Death by a uh, dirty grapefruit spoon. It's just a tough way to go. Uh, it's a great side fight scene. Once he's done, he's like, okay, now I need help. Uh, and Hurley's going to go and uh, bring him to the car, but not before everybody outside is able to take a picture of Hurley with a gun. Yeah, exactly. This is, I mean, this is Hurley's life story, right? Though, ever since he's won the lottery, like, he's tried to do, he's tried to, to get involved in intimate moments, and then someone just catches him in the wrong place at the wrong time, and now it just all goes to hell in a handbasket. And so now, Hurley has become Kate Austin in not only his long, luscious, curly locks, but he is a, he is a fugitive he's right now. He's a fugitive. Uh, he is. He's going to have a, a marshal of his own coming after him. Um, let's go back to the island. I think that this is this is going to be the moment, right, Mike, where we're going to get the iconic line. Whatever happened, mm-hmm. happened is going to be canonized on the show uh, as uh, Sawyer is going to say it's time to like go back to the island. We'll be able to like stop our... Or to the beach. Right, because cool, yeah, they, they go to the hatch. We'll talk, hear about this in the clip, but they're essentially now at the site of the swan, which is post-implosion. It's a big old crater, and so they assume, okay... We're back to to our relative timeline. Let's go warn them not to get on the chopper or even hail that call from uh, not Minkowski right. in the first place. And Faraday's like, well, well, let me quote a future episode title for you. Yeah, so yeah, let's so. listen. To- Is this the hatch? It was. Blown up, just like we left it. Okay. So, when we are now, it's now after you and your people crashed on the island. You saying our camp is back on the beach again? It's possible, yeah. Good, I'm going back. Hey, no, no. It's pointless. More pointless than staring at a hole in the ground? We don't know when the next flash is coming. By the time you get back to the beach, the camp could be gone again. Yeah, well, what if it ain't? Yeah, what if the helicopter hasn't even taken off yet? We could warn them. Stop them from ever flying to that boat. That's not the way it works. Who says? You cannot change anything. You can't. Even if you tried to, it wouldn't work. Why not? Time, it's like a street. Right? We can move forward on that street. We can move in reverse, but we cannot ever create a new street. If we try to do anything different, we will fail every time. Whatever happened, happened. How do you know so much about this, Danny boy? I know about this because I spent my entire adult life studying space-time. I know all this because this journal contains everything I've ever learned about the Dharma Initiative. This is why I'm here. I know what's happening. So how can we stop it? can't stop it. Then who can? Wait, what? 
Why the hell do you have a page in your notebook that says Desmond Hume is my constant? Yeah, you like Desmond? I He's kind of dry. Went boar hunting with him once, and I never wanted to hang out with him after. Do you like him, or do you like like him? Do you him? like like him? Uh, so this is whatever happened happened, which is a great line. Uh, it's, you know, it's just like, this is like when you talk about what time travel rules you're dealing with, like, I think like a shorthand is like, is it back to the future rules? Is it whatever happened happened rules? So like, it's a line that transcends the show. I think that like lost contributes something to popular time travel discourse, at least like modern pop culture time travel discourse where you talk about lost rules or being whatever happened happened. So I think that this is like a really, really sharply articulated, like very like catchy slogan to mm-hmm. to summarize how lost handles time travel that like you go back, you are now vulnerable, even though you're 1977, you could die because that's where you're at. Like you don't necessarily like, it doesn't just mean that like you're invulnerable now. Right. And even on the other side, though, it it goes along with at least Lost is trying to say in this moment, and it might try to show us something a little bit different during the flash sideways initially in season six. But essentially, Lost is not going after this whole multiverse, multiple timeline idea of, oh, yeah, you go back in time and then that the butterfly effect, the moth effect, if you will, now an entirely different timeline happens as a result. He's saying, no, no, no. You're going to go back and try to change something, but it's always going to default back to the way it was before. We spoke about this during Flashes Before Your Eyes, right, with the whole macro versus micro thing when Desmond, um, when Daniel's own mother is going to talk to Desmond about the exact same thing. It runs in the family. So I really like this because we are, again, we've dabbled in time travel before, but now that we're going to focus on it fully, it's good to get a nice reminder about how at least the rules of time travel will, will happen with loss as opposed to you know, uh, numerous amounts of comic books that deal with time travel. Avengers Endgame, as an example, right. of like how to completely change the timeline by going back and doing things. That's when you do go back and kill Hitler or baby Hitler or whatever. Uh, but at least in this moment, Faraday's saying and telling the audience as well, no, we can try to change things, but again, whatever happened, happened. It's, it's a fantastic phrase. It's like nice and snappy from an ad perspective and a marketing perspective. It, it flows so beautifully. So maybe Faraday missed a calling on, uh, on Madison Avenue. Oh yeah. Uh, he'd be a great, uh, he'd be, uh, Jeremy Davies. Was he ever on Mad Men? He would have been great. No, I don't believe so. I think, I think he would have been, he has the look for when they went a little more bohemian, uh, in the later seasons, right when Paul Kinsey became like a Hare Krishna, like I could see him in the art room being like, "All right, here's the idea. It's like a Coke bottle, but it's turned upside down and spins to form an octopus, and the tentacles reach out like that." I could feel like Jeremy Davies very much has that type of attitude. I think that would have been great. He does have the line where he's like, "It's like a street can't go on another street." It's like really. Nope. Like you can't make another street? I think yeah, forget, forget a one-way could, street, no? Josh. It's a, it's a no-way street. You're trapped. Don't you think you could make another street? Nope, there's a parade going on, and so you can't leave the block at all, all day. It's so odd to me, but all right. Uh, you can't can't go on the street. Uh, you only got the one street. There's no other streets. You can't build another street. Whatever happened, I mean, I, happened. 
Yeah, I mean, is there a better It's because I wasn't available that day. If you'd called me, I would have drilled, drilled you under the street. street. I could have gone under I the street. I could have gone under the street. I would have gone underground. I could have given you subterranean streets. It's the, it's the old under-streety job. I've you done it a bundle of times. You can't go forward on the street, but you still got to get out of there. Well, good news. I got to drill. I could drill a hole into the ground. We can go underground. Then I drilled a hole like sideways to the ground. We just drilled a new tunnel into the that's, thing. That's how I beat the time stream. Yeah. I'm an omnipotent being. Yeah, I am God. Um, so that's why you said God help us all. God I help am God. us all. I'm God. It's me. I'm Saul, the drill man. I'm also I, God. I, I drilled my way into becoming a God. Yeah, but I'm an all powerful being. Um, so speaking of all powerful beings, so it's like who can stop it? Uh, and so the action cuts to Locke, which is a good trick because it's not yeah. Locke necessarily who can stop it, but. Kind of I mean, he, like he will quite literally stop the timey-wimeyness later on. So it's a good hint as to, like, here's how he's, he might wind up off of the island. He'll but be right able now, to, like, we're, put we're not the record yet. back. Yeah, like, the record is a scoot. Uh, so he'll... he'll it's not, fi- definitely not orthogonal. He'll, he'll fix that, but, like, otherwise, like, you know, he's not going to be the guy who, like, gets them uh, out of, uh, you know, the 1970s by any stretch of the imagination. But John... Locke is uh, he's hobbling. He's got something to strap up his leg. It's dark. He sees someone by torchlight. And then I think a relatively iconic scene occurs, not the least of which is because this is one of the great famous lost paradoxes mm. uh, about to occur as Richard Alpert shows up here to talk to John Locke. Richard. Hey, John. Richard. What is happening? What's happening is you're bleeding to death. You need to get the bullet out. How did you know there was a bullet in my leg, Richard? Because you told me there was, John. No, no. No, I didn't. Well, you will. It was Ethan who shot me. Well, comes around, goes around. When am I? Well, John, that's all relative. The noise when the sky lit up. Where did you go? I didn't go anywhere, John. You went. All right, th- th- this is going to hurt. It'll be a lot worse if you move, okay? Hold still. Okay. All done. How did you know where to find me? I wish I had time to explain it, John, but you're going to be moving on soon. We need to go over a couple things before moving you... Moving on? Okay. Sorry. First thing, okay? You're going to need to clean out the wound every couple of hours. Keep as much weight off the leg as you can, all right? The island will do the rest, John. All right. But I don't, Second thing, I don't... no, no, pay attention. Next time we see each other, I'm not going to recognize you, all right? You give me this. All right. What is this? It's a compass. What does it do? It points north, John. 
Look, I wish I had time to be more sensitive about this because it's a lot to swallow, but you need to know it in order to do what you got to do, so I'm just going to say it, okay? The only way to save the island, John, is to get your people back here, the ones who left. Jack, Jimmy. The chopper was headed for the boat, the boat. No, they're fine, John, and they're already home, so you have to convince them to come back. How am I supposed to do that? You're going to have to die, John. this scene so much i love it too i so this is the this some of this is some of my like this is my shit like this is the (laughs) like this stuff i really love from this season because like this is the intersection between the timey-wimeyness and the monster putting the final pieces of his plan into action Mm -hmm. um to reset it for anyone who hasn't watched it in a while needs the reset uh, like Richard comes to Locke with all of this knowledge because he's being told to talk to Locke by who Richard believes to be John Locke. John Locke. Um, that this is, you know, this is 2007. Right. I believe this is a follow the leader this when this follow, happens. Yes, this is follow the grace leader. This <laughs> is uh, this is uh, John. Uh, this is John Locke in the jungle by the Beechcraft as a man who certainly presents to be John Locke, but is actually not. Um, and Benjamin Linus and Richard Alpert uh, are going to be here. And uh, fake Locke is going to tell Richard all these things that he needs to do and go and tell that person. It's like, who am I going to be talking to? You're going to be talking to me, Richard. Uh, and Richard goes off and does this, that this is like a huge, important move for the monster because he's like, how, how is John Locke going to know uh, like to do the things and it's because I tell him to do it. Like he's just like, yeah. he has, he has that as part of the the gambit. This is like right. sort of like the final uh, push that John Locke is going to need in order to go off and do all the things and make sure it all happens. So there's like that level of confidence in uh, this uh, eternal confidence man's plan that mm. happens here. And you get to see the monster through Richard, but it's like unwitting, right? Like Richard doesn't really, know what he's doing here to the point where he says next time you see me you're not going to recognize me but richard is also dealing with someone that he thinks he recognizes but he actually does not right and i think it's a really bad look for richard albert to be honest interesting Uh, i think it's a i think it's a a a staggeringly bad look for richard albert because richard albert knows the monster richard albert like knows uh you know what the like he he has seen that the monster can take the form of man. Uh, he was tested by the man in black in Abiturno and was sent to kill Jacob. And then Jacob sits him down and tells him that that monster is evil and a manipulator. In that same episode, Richard's going to say to Jacob, I never want to die uh, or whatever it is. He says, like, make it so that I never die. Uh, Jacob's like, I can't do that, man. Like, and what's with the accent? And so instead he's like, uh, or that's what he does. He's like, I'll make it so you can't die. But he's like, I never want to go to hell or whatever the stupid thing mm-hmm. he says uh and like the man in black fly like his whole existence uh is is you know he represents the devil he represents hell with john Locke being dead he's gonna go and tell Locke you have to die he's gonna know like this whole thing about how john Locke died and now this man is running around as john Locke, 
And Richard Alpert is never once going to suspect that this guy who's telling me, let's go see Jacob is maybe that guy. Hmm. Does it, does it help or hurt that Ben is with him? Because, uh, because Ben is someone that Richard does trust, right? Could it be like, Oh, I've, I don't I, know like, that he ben trusts him. I actually think that we've, we've talked a decent amount about how like Richard's like kind of over it with Ben. Um, right. But I wouldn't say that seen ben, him in years. But I wouldn't say that that Richard's being like, wow, Ben's really being hosed as well. You know, there could be an assumption that he feels like as much as he dislikes Ben, that Ben would have a good gauge of paranoia, albeit he'll be incorrect about this, to not know, to know if he was running around with the real John Locke or some sort of facsimile of him. I think that Richard knows more than Ben does uh, about the Jacob and Man in Black stuff, at least. You know, like Ben's whole crux is like, why didn't Jacob ever want to talk to me? So I'm going to kill him. Um, you know, I think for Richard, he's the consigliere. He's supposed to like, you know, he's, uh, he's the guy who knows, right. He's Tom Hagen. Like he's supposed to know what's going on to a certain degree. Like, I think that like for him, the way that future lock fake lock is acting is so man in black that Richard should clock that if he's supposed to be as good at this job as he is. Yeah. Which I guess, but, John like, Lo- but John Locke is also a tempestuous character, right? Like sometimes he does have this confidence streak to him. Sometimes he is braggadocious. I think if John Locke has a bad day, I'm not necessarily going to look at him and be like, that's the man in black right there. No, but I think the fact that this guy is dead, but now he's not would cause me some measure of alarm. I think, like, if I'm in Richard's position, presumably he knows a little bit about, like, the Man in Black's capabilities in this regard. So it never once sets off an alarm in his head of, like, I think this could be the Man in Black. I mean, they're saying John Locke's dead, and now he's back. Like, that doesn't really happen. Dead is dead. So I don't know. So for for me, it's not great. The, The allowance that I would give is that, obviously the man in black through John Locke kind of plays head games with Richard as well. Yeah. Uh, that like, you know, he's going to send Locke back. Locke's going to give him the compass, which by the way, the origin of the compass, it's paradoxical. Mm-hmm. What came first, you know, the Richard giving John the compass or John giving Richard the compass. How did the compass come to be is a great question. I love the fact that there's no real clean answer. Some things just are, I yep. think that that's compelling. Um, I think like the idea that Richard has been sort of dizzied about John Locke for, you know, 50 some odd years at this point. Um, I think that there is, uh, there's, there's some space there for me to be like, okay, when it comes to John Locke, that's a little bit of a trigger for Richard where he's a little bit off kilter, off balance. And maybe for a long time, he's been waiting to see what Locke can do. And apparently what Locke can do is come back from the dead this is that mystery man, right? Like, yeah, this is someone who he saw 50 years ago and gave him all these instructions that he went forward with. So I would also not be surprised if, granted, he's no Jacob or Man in Black, but if he's like, oh, this guy's John Locke, yeah, apparently he can do anything. He used to not be able to walk, now he can walk. He might come back from the dead. I mean, this scene is so fun in so many ways. It's a little sad when you realize that I do believe... Again, obviously, John Locke will go back in time and give the compass to Richard and everything, but this will be the last, the furthest point in the timeline where John Locke and Richard Alpert will have this conversation. And I think it's a really interesting comparison to when Richard Alpert first met John Locke when he was a kid, where, again, Richard was sort of giving this instruction to John Locke and trying to push him onto this path that Locke was virulently pushing away. Now, Richard is trying to veer him onto another path Again, under uh, auspicious circumstances, and he doesn't realize that, but Locke fully takes the bait. 
at this point. And it also keys really into what you mentioned before, which is this is the moment that John Locke needed. I think this entire episode, John Locke felt maybe not betrayed by the island, but certainly confused. He felt like he was the new leader. He had found his purpose. And now a billion more questions have been raised. I will also give Locke some credit that he was figuring out he didn't need no Daniel Faraday for the time travel stuff, right? Like he asked Richard, when am I? He needed no colorful metaphors uh, to figure out exactly what was going on with time travel. He saw the Beechcraft taking off and he saw Ethan and said, OK, I'm traveling through time. OK, let's go with it. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think it's fair. I think I'm still going to probably ultimately land on like, Richard, you could have done better here. I also love the you're going to have to die, John. Uh, it, it's a it's a very fun callback for loss. Not only does it mirror you're going to have you're going to die, Charlie, but also the previous episode we talked about has John Locke telling Jack, you're going to have to lie. I love that that's a take that now John Locke is, is, you know, said that comment. Now it's being said back to him in rhyming form only, you know, one episode later. Yeah. Uh, it's a great scene regardless. Uh, it's just cool. I love the compass. The line, it points north. Uh, it's just is really, really, really great. Um, back at the jungle after the flash, uh, it's daytime. Um, so they're no longer trying to go back to the, to the beach. Uh, they realize the hatch is, is here. So Sawyer wants to go and wake up Desmond, uh, <laughs> which is just incredible. Let Nick up. He has a crush on you out here. Yeah. So we'll, we'll listen in on Sawyer trying to come to Desmond and a, a really great scene ensues as a result. Hey, where are you going? Back door. I'm getting some supplies. James, wait. Not a good idea. This guy can flash all at once, but I ain't starting over, Gilbert. I ain't rubbing two sticks together to start a fire, and I ain't hunting damn four. There's Dharma food, beer, and clothing in there. And I'm getting Desmond to let me in one way or another. That's not going to work, my friend. Yeah, why not? Because Desmond didn't know you when you first came out of there. That means you never met which means you can't meet. This would all be fascinating if I was listening to you. How do you know Desmond is even in there? Think about it. It could be anybody. I don't care who's in there. Wait. Wait. Open the damn door! It won't work. Sure it will. You'll open up! It goes to Christmas future! No one. No one is going to answer. Open the damn door! Open the door! You're wasting your time. Open up! I know you can hear me! If it didn't happen, it can't happen. Can't change the past, James! Everybody I care about just threw up on your damn boat. I know what I can't change. We should get back to the beach. Juliet Burke with the stealth save here, dissolving the tension. Yeah, I love the way that uh, I love I love the way that she de-escalates Sawyer. Just like a nice little uh, glimpse into the future for these two characters. I like that yeah, we exactly. get that as soon as this episode. Yeah, so I mean, we've we've mentioned this line many times, especially in response to what he does with the helicopter. Everybody I cared about just blew up on your damn boat. Yeah, I know what I can't change. So it's very clear at this point that. 
Sawyer knows that in knocking on the door to to rouse Desmond or or whatever, that it's not necessarily him being like, oh, we can do this, we can save it from a, a meaningful perspective. It's more so like grasping at straws, futility, uh, and him also, I think, finally emotionally reconciling that black smoke that he saw in the distance. And it's, it's a really meaningful moment as much as Sawyer was really just in the passenger seat this entire episode but shirtless this is a moment where we finally get to sort of stop down and let this character breathe yeah I mean I think like he's had like his whole arc in season four was like fighting you know for like what was in front of him now that what was in the past was dead and it was so unsatisfying and the thing that was like worth living for were like the people that he's met here and the life that he's started to live for himself to to lead for himself and all that literally went up in a puff of smoke and now he's traveling through time without a shirt on. Uh, so he's, it's been, it's uh, been a day. It's, it's been a day. It's been a really tough day on top of everything else. He jumped off a helicopter, you know, like a lot has gone on now for nothing too. Uh, man, you know, it's Sawyer's going to deserve some props. I think in this episode, I, I, I didn't give him an initial MVP point, but I do think I'm, I'm reconsidering it right now. Uh, think about the fact that the barracks blew up. Sawyer then treks through the jungle with Miles, who he doesn't know or trust at all, mm-hmm. Claire, and the baby. Who, 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 disappears, who disappears, leaving the baby behind, baby behind. He has to watch the baby for like a full day at least. Uh, who knows how he feeds the baby uh, over the course of the walk through the jungle. Hands the baby off, goes back into the jungle with Jack, uh, like exactly the way he came. Gets on a helicopter, jumps off the helicopter, swims through the ocean to get back to the island, immediately starts traveling through time. And he's still standing, this guy. Forgive him for being a little bit cranky. This is very impressive. He's having a very impressive day. Yeah, I mean, it's it's impressive that he's been able to withstand all of this. I mean, emotional trauma is nothing new to James Ford, but... A lot has been happening. He's been trying to reconcile a lot as well. They went from day to night back to day. That's got to screw with your circadian rhythm a bit. Plus, he has, in my opinion, an all-time nickname from Sawyer of Dilbert for Daniel Faraday. I know that obviously (laughs) Dilbert has taken on a maybe more politicized context nowadays, but I do feel like the button-down white shirt with the skinny tie does very much invoke that cartoon strip. Yeah, for sure. And I do love Juliet in this scene as well, just like the way she's de-escalating uh sawyer so that's uh that works they're gonna start going back to the beach there's nothing uh there's nothing to go back to miles complains uh meanwhile charlotte starts to get the nosebleeds yeah she says it hasn't happened since she was young and we're gonna see young charlotte later on is she the one or is daniel the one who says don't dilly dally uh she tells uh faraday uh, because faraday's like i'm just gonna check some stuff in my backpack she goes okay well don't dilly dally shilly shally wait does is anyone on this writing staff ever met a British person? Yeah, don't dilly-dally. I was going to bring this up between don't dilly-dally and her going, oi, in response to, to Sawyer slapping Faraday. They, like, reached into a book of British, you know, stereotypical phrases and said, oh, yeah, they, they say don't dilly-dally, don't the they? The more sure, we say dilly-dally, I have to just keep saying dilly-dally, shilly-shally. Final Fantasy shout-out. I don't have a choice. Uh, I don't make the <laughs> rules. I, whatever happened, happened. Um, let's get to the end of the episode because Faraday's obviously really concerned about the fact that Charlotte's nose is gushing blood. This is a bad sign. Things mm-hmm. are happening. He knows she's having chocolate like. after dinner. She too. will be soon, and that's not good. Uh, so he is going to stay behind. He's going to start knocking furiously on the hatch door, which is going to lead to him getting to meet his constant in the final scene 
of the episode. Please let this work. Please let this work. Please, please, please let this work. Whoa, whoa! Don't shoot. Then you best explain why you've been banging on my door for the last 20 minutes, brother. Desmond. Are you him? Him? Who? My replacement. No, I'm not. I'm not, I'm not. I'm... Do I know you? Yeah. In a way. But listen, that's not important. What is important, Desmond, is what I'm about to say to you. I need you to listen. You're the only person who can help us because, Desmond, the rules, the rules don't apply to you. You're special. You're uniquely and miraculously special. What are you talking about? Okay, listen to me. Listen. If the helicopter somehow made it off the island, if you got home... What helicopter? What are you talking listen, about? Listen, I need you to listen, or people are going to die. My name is Daniel Faraday. And right now, me and everyone else you left behind, we're in serious danger. You're the only person who can help us. I need you to go back to Oxford University. Go back to where we met. I need you to go there and find my mother. Her name is... Uh... uh... off the island for three years now. You're safe now. It was just a dream. It wasn't a dream, man. It was a memory. Desmond, where are you going? so that raises a lot of questions yeah um so like did this always happen or was this like an adjustment in time or so so was it like a coincidental thing then if it was it just like a dream that desmond happened to have at that point in time where he remembered it or to that former point was it that daniel created this event in the timeline it just manifested itself in Desmond's head, and that's why he remembers it. Yeah, I think I think like it could be like I think it could be something like that where it's like he's like linked across. Like I don't know that like he's linked across time. Maybe I, I think like you just have to accept to a certain extent that Desmond is, as Faraday says, it's just like miraculously special because of his his whole electromagnetic thing at this could that, could that also be a declaration of love a la uh, love actually this is his sort of like standing outside say it's carolers moment mm-hmm. yeah i think that's right i think that's right 
Uh, uh, well, there's also the matter as well, where a little bit of plot hole, right? Where we knew through Live Together, Die Alone, that Kelvin never let Desmond out of the hatch. And this is a moment where we do see Desmond briefly open the back door in the hazmat suit. Uh, so it's like, okay, why is he doing that? You could chalk that up to Desmond's memory has been spotty, maybe due to the exposure to the electromagnetism, and he just maybe did not necessarily remember this incident until now. Another really noticeable detail, which I liked, is so the flash is going off as as Desmond and Daniel are talking, right? This is going to be a big mystery. We, we won't find out who Daniel Faraday's mother is for a little bit, right? Uh, which is why it gets cut off right at the name. But if you notice, when the flashes have gone off previously in the episode, notably with Ethan and Richard, with non-815 people, they have not noticed it whatsoever, it, they don't notice the light at all. They just go about with their day. Right. If you notice, Desmond... He notices it. He, yeah, he looks up. It seems like he's noticing the noise and the bright sky. So even if you argue, okay, his time travel powers were triggered by the hatch imploding, it still seems to imply that even at that point in time that Daniel finds him... He's still a little special in that he was able to perceive that something was going on with time travel while they were talking. Yeah. Uh, so like, I think like that signals, yeah, that... It's a Faraday's point. Desmond is different. Uh, the fact that Desmond can engage this and maybe because he experiences this flash, it does some sort of like men in black style memory wipe. Yeah, I would imagine that. And it's also like, you know, the, we talk, this happens with Desmond throughout seasons two and three, too, that he just has a difficult time putting his memories together as well yeah. so maybe it's just a, a thing that he happened to forget about but we get a little bit of a jump as to what's going on with desmond and penny right we see wedding rings on those hands so those two kids crazy kids got hitched they're uh boating outside of mama mia island but yeah. they're they're gonna make a quick route back to oxford and desmond as much as he said i'm never going back to that island he's certainly gonna help people get there yeah he is he's you know desmond if is nothing if not a hero and like he knows that People are in danger. He's been summoned. He's been called upon. He heard the call, right? Mm -hmm. uh, to quote him. Uh, so there we go. Uh, that is the season five premiere of Lost. And as it aired, there was the whole next hour to watch in the lie. We're not doing that for this podcast. It was a hell of a night of Lost. But I think even in ISO, just on its own, uh, I think it, <laughs> I don't think I've ever heard in ISO before. That's a, that's a very cute abbreviation. It, I love it. It just it it you know it it works really well. Um, I don't think that this is like a uh like an like it's not a four point two for me. I give mm -hmm. this like a very solid, very very strong four. Uh, I, I agree. I'm going to give it the same. Yeah, uh, I think, which is what the audience gave it too. Actually, we're all in lockstep, three fours. Oh, uh, follow, follow the leader in that regard. Yeah, for me, I think it's actually pretty comparable to the previous season premiere, which I also gave a four. I think it is incredibly strong. I think the on island stuff. I really do think they did like a pitch perfect job introducing this legitimately ridiculous concept that now Lost is doing full-on time travel. Like, they did a great job easing in with the metaphors, with having the characters walk through it. You're able to get a nice emotional character beat as well from Sawyer. That all tracks incredibly well. I think what takes it down a little bit for me that does not make it a perfect episode of Lost is the fact that, as we mentioned before, I think some of the off-island stuff is enjoyable, but a little bit is ultimately superfluous in the large scheme of things. And for me, 
a perfect episode of Lost is always going to be something where I feel like not a second of footage is wasted. You m- use every minute of those 42 minutes that, that take place. Here, I feel like maybe with the Sun stuff, maybe with the Kate stuff, uh, there's there's not like an, uh, an A-plus scene that takes place in every single scene across this episode. So it's going to take a slight ding for me here, a slight shot to the leg. Sure, but I think but that's overall. It's, it's a really strong setup. Like, they, they, uh, they have all... It's really hard to yeah. provide the bedrock for this season, and I think they do it really admirably. Is it a next-level episode of the show? No, it wouldn't, like, be in my top ten... Uh, but like it's it's a it's a great episode. I think like it's it's a very very solid premiere. Um, it it gets you off on the on the right foot with everything that's going on in uh, in in season five. I have it at the same spot that I gave uh, a Tale of Two Cities. Uh, that mm, that feel yeah. that feels fair to me. I think that this is like uh, a really similar quality to the uh, the season three premiere. Um, so fours across the board. But my point is, Mike, is that like everything is going to be close to here for me, pretty much. Uh, like I think that this is around like a, <laughs> like a like a couple smidges lower, uh, probably, but like not by much. Like I think I'll mostly be like like three sevens. Uh, I'm expecting for for season five. Um, it's just a really strong start to a, a really fun, mind bending season that's like really, really rich with the thematics. Yeah, I'm very excited by this start. Again, like my own brain is a little mushy a la Desmond's with, again, trying to parse out what happens when in this first stretch of the season. So now that I got to like see what Because You Left comprised of, I think it was a really neat little package, not to be confirmed, uh, confused with the package who ends the episode here. Yeah, for sure. All right. Before we continue on, let's take a quick moment to thank our sponsors for this episode of Post Show Recaps. Those are our friends. Over at Geico, do you own or rent your home? Sure you do. And I bet it can be hard work. Well, you know what's easy? Bundling policies with Geico. Geico makes it easy to bundle your homeowner's or renter's insurance along with your auto policy. It's a good thing, too, because you already have so much to do around your home. Go to Geico.com, get a quote, and see how much you could save. It's Geico easy. Visit Geico.com today. That's Geico.com. Uh, let's get into the others, Mike, uh, both the tidbits from behind the scenes, as well as feedback from the hatchlings, um, initially, uh, compiled by the great Ben behind the curtain, uh, sourcing dark UFO, uh, Ben lets us in on the fact that the opening scene of this episode had changed. Um, initially the opening scene of the life and death of Jeremy Bentham was to open the season uh, with the scene of Caesar and Alana rifling through a Jira 316 and meeting John Locke, who quote unquote was, wasn't on the plane. Um, That would have been, I I, would have been cool, but I think it would have been really confusing. Frankly, I think this, I think this is a much better choice. Uh, Maybe it's just because I'm really not a fan of Alana and Caesar and Bram and all that. But we really, we, we wax profound about how much we love that opening scene, how it really vibes so well with how we've opened seasons two and three in particular, yet turns it on his head again. That makes so much more sense to me than if we started the season with arriving back on the island with not John Locke. Yeah. And a bunch of characters we don't know. Yeah. Uh, I just don't think it would have had the juice. I think like finally getting origin of Pierre Chang or like semi origin, I think it's just so much cooler. 
Well, especially because that's going to be, as you said, an ending point. I mean, this is sort of an ending point as well, but this is going to be the more pertinent ending point. Yeah. Uh, All right. Let's go into this next one. This is from uh, the interview that the Hatch podcast, Sammy Roth and Rosie Murphy did with Damon Lindelof, um, where he talked about how in writing the season, there was this story, this fable, the appointment in Samara, which was uh, foundational for uh the the writing of the show and sort of like the ideas that they had in mind for season five uh this is uh quoting damon lindelof the basic idea is that it takes place in the middle east this guy who's in service of a feudal lord is in a marketplace and he sees death the grim reaper and he's terrified and he runs back to his master and says i saw death he was there for me i just know it and his master says how do you know he was there for you and he says he turned and he looked right at me And his master says, here's what you do. Take one of my horses, ride to Samara, lay low. I'll go check out the situation. Once death is no longer around, I'll send for you. No one will think to look for you there. So the guy says, thank you, master, and rides off. The master goes into town and into the market. And sure enough, there's death sitting and having a drink or something like that. And the man goes up to him and says, what are you doing here? You scared the bejesus out of my servant. And death says, I was just so surprised to see him here today because we have an appointment in Samara tomorrow. Uh, and Lindelof says, the reason I love this story is the causation. The attempt to avert the inevitable is actually what causes it. So that's like the kind of story they wanted to do throughout season five. And I think it really, really hits. A cleaner version of Oedipus, if yeah. you will. The self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I think it's good. I think it, I, I think it's clever. I think uh, it really is um, indicative of like future interests for Damon Lindelof that he's, gonna, you know, certainly it's, uh, pr- you know, prevalent throughout Lost. But I think he's really going to be able to seize on a lot of this kind of like biblical storytelling when he gets to like the leftovers. Uh, certainly. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, as, yeah, absolutely. Just go just go down to Jordan and experience all of that biblical causality. Yeah, happening. for sure. All right. Let's get into some feedback. The great John Krause writes in. John writes in and says, how on earth does Ethan not remember Locke? I believe Yemi's plane only crashed a few years before 815, and I would think that bald man who knows my name and says his name is John Locke and then disappears in front of me would be pretty memorable. Unless the name is so meaningful that he believes it's either a code name or many men have crashed onto the island and claimed that their name is John Locke. Yeah. It's a real Spartacus <laughs> moment. Uh-huh. I am John Lockacus. Oh, uh, no, you're like the fourth John Locke I've run into this week, buddy. You're yeah. not getting past me. Yeah. Uh, this is from Av, says, Ethan's behavior makes no sense. He stumbled upon a man who appears to have crash-landed in the jungle who somehow knows who Ben Linus is, claims that Ben appointed him the new leader, and he's prepared to shoot this guy on sight. Maybe bring him in for some questioning first. Yeah, the more I think about it, the more I think I got to give Ethan an LVP. <laughs> I think Ethan I mean, has yeah, to get an LVP yeah. this week. As I talked about before, it makes sense with the character, but it's not a good thing to do. No, it makes sense with the character. It's not a good thing to do, but, you know, I think uh, I've I've given him props for being great at being bad. I think I got to give him the opposite of props when he's being bad at being bad. What's uh, the opposite of props? Um, the Costumes? Genuine, yeah, I think the opposite of props is like uh, the real thing. No, oh, the real. We're giving you objects. Yeah, like objects. Uh, from from Emily Reed. Emily writes in and says, when Faraday asks Sawyer, who's unaccounted for on the island, why isn't Claire included? Have they forgotten about her already? Isn't she the very definition of unaccounted for? Could it be that, uh, besides the obvious reasons of like, oh, Emily Draven's off the show for the season, could it be that Sawyer considers Claire quote-unquote gone? 
yeah. at this point. I mean, Locke didn't, Locke didn't tell him that he saw her, right? So, like, he believes that she's just flat out disappeared. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think that maybe he thinks that she's just, like, gone, gone at this point. Gone, Clary, gone. And, like, if she's missing, like, how are you going to go and find her in the midst of all this time traveling? It's going to be pretty hard. Uh, yeah, and I can imagine that Sawyer's not necessarily the most optimistic person at this point, right? He's not like, Claire's out there somewhere, we're gonna find her. It's more so like, yeah, we lost Claire, and she's probably gone. She left her baby behind, that means something. Yeah. Uh, so we got this from Dowd Servo. Why did the writers decide to write Claire and out of the series for a whole ser- uh, season? They just have no idea what to do with her. Uh, I think we talked that through. I think that they wanted that to have big impact. Um, but I think it also is to a large degree, Mike, uh, that they just never really got Claire. You know, like, yeah. I think that they just didn't do it right. Yeah, we we talked about this, that, uh, you know, she this is a character that once she gave birth to Aaron, they had no idea what to do with her, to be yeah. blunt about it. And so they tried a few things and it just didn't necessarily work, though. I would love to know if there are any hatchlings out there who can find any sort of interview or work as to like, maybe I know she was also doing some other stuff at the time. Maybe there was also dealings with that, or it could have just been a like, Hey, we really don't know what to do with you, Emily. So, uh, take five. And by take five, I mean, take season five off. Yeah. Uh, so I think that it's some, it's something like that, but I think that, uh, there's probably some regrets surrounding that choice. Uh, from Eric Divestein. Hi, Eric. Eric says, is there any particular reason Desmond would dream about his memory of meeting Daniel right at that moment in 2007? Or is it just coincidental timing to serve the plot? Do you have a thought on that, Mike? That like specific yeah. moment being the thing that he is waking up to? Yeah, because we, we talked about this, how there's certainly one camp, uh, even though the camp's gone, that says, oh, Daniel created that memory right there, and it like, suddenly pops up in his head. It could also be maybe Desmond is connected to the island. If the island wants these candidates to return, then it sort of is almost much like Daniel did using Desmond as a conduit, right? Using him as like a communicator in that moment to be like, hey, remember what Daniel Faraday told you? These guys are assembling. You're going to want to help them uh, start helping the troops. Like, I would imagine that the the powers that be on the island have some sort of tab as to what's going on off island uh, in a manner of speaking, at least a little bit. And so maybe there's this idea of, oh, you're going to have to help these people get back. Uh, Here's a reminder as to when you were tasked to do so. Yeah, uh, I I think that that's cool. I just I love that. Like, I don't know. He's he's threading him to like the moment where, you know, Desmond going to seek out, you know, everything in Oxford and then go to Los Angeles and go to the lamppost and everything like is all part and parcel with whatever happened happened. So like he kind of has to hit him in this moment, I think. Yeah. You know, because I, of the timeline. So. Uh this is once again from John Krause. Uh this is great. Uh in season 4 Daniel looks at a note in his notebook that says if anything goes wrong, Desmond will be my constant. I always thought this never really went anywhere. And I think you guys said the same on the podcast. But in this episode, Daniel flips through his notebook, looks at a page that we can't see, and then he goes and finds Desmond in the hatch. Tells Desmond to go and find Eloise. But I also think he's making himself talk to Desmond so that he can find his constant. He does this immediately after he sees Charlotte's nosebleed. So he's inoculating himself from time travel disease. The note pays off, you guys! Oh, interesting. I didn't even think about that, that we thought it was just one thing of, oh, yeah, it's more of a a metaphorical thing than anything. But no, 
he he needed Desmond in this moment to uh, not only help the others off island, but also help protect himself against the time travel diseases. Uh, the the legendary Brent the Shower Man writes in uh, the scene where Richard tends to Locke's bullet wound is one of my favorite all time lost scenes. I love mm. how it plays on the time travel element, the compass, the fact that Locke has to leave the island and die to bring everybody back. And to top it all off, Richard knows all of this because the man in black, as Locke, tells him and leads him there. There's so much in this one scene, and I love it. It's a really rich scene. It just is. It, no, it's a Richard scene, specifically. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I think that... I don't know if I go so far as to say all time, but I think this is one of the top season five scenes. Because I think, to Brent's very great point, it really is a microcosm of like what season five is. Right? It's time travel. It's involving people leaving the island and coming back it involves the man in black in disguise as Locke. it really is all of season five packed into one scene when you consider the circumstances behind it yeah uh it's just brilliant it's it's so beautiful um let's uh <laughs> andrew you wrote in some quick hits andrew you wrote in and said i put my knives point down in the dishwasher oh that's the name of the knives out sequel we finally got it point down knives, knives out point points down. down uh this is from off time travel baby hitler a hero shaving his beard what is this the source material for avengers endgame no that only happens there's actually a deleted scene where they they pop back to the future and miles has a little baby head inside his hood but they decide to cut that out because i i came in and i judged on my cinematic baby scale and it turned out to not pass my test <laughs> um all right mike let's do the 23 points let's do the mvps and the lvps uh let's hop into it you've got three mvps i've got two i've got three lvps you've got two i think this is like an easy one to give mvp points out to as in like lots of different candidates then maybe slightly harder on the lvps this week yeah again it's a very strong episode and it's there's not many especially named characters who i feel like act particularly badly so apologies in advance if i'm a little bit of a stretch for these more so than usual but let's start with the good stuff let's start with the mvps because i mean this is a really great coming out party for daniel faraday after being a little lost stumbling through season four a bit besides the constant like this is really his time to shine so i'm looking forward to giving daniel faraday the first of hopefully many mvp points for season five yeah i uh i very nearly did i think we we ended up like spreading the wealth on the mvps this week and so seeing that you gave faraday an mvp i was just good to let him have that uh i almost gave him one this week i talked myself into giving one to sawyer towards the end of this just like recapping what like his recent life is like uh and the fact that he's still standing on two feet and just like still going is really impressive to me uh so uh reigning mvp co-mvp of season four james sawyer ford getting his first point on the board here in season five also he's he's shirtless the whole time so you know he looks really really great i know you're gonna deduct him a point and maybe that's gonna embolden me to give this guy a point more but I'm going to give a point to Richard Alpert. Yeah, I'll negate uh, that for sure. Yeah, but, but I'm I'm not shy from giving Richard Alpert points. And I, I see your points about him getting duped by the man in black. But the fact of the matter is he does arguably save this current John Locke's life by patching him up, by giving him, you know, the compass to, to create the paradox and everything. If you take the circumstances out, I do think that Richard in the scene itself is very very good and i want to give him some credit here for tending good first day to john locke yeah okay i'll take it away for the reasons i outlined earlier uh just uh, also like 
lack of choice in this episode. Uh, gonna, and also beyond that, I do think like, yeah, maybe you could have been a little more critical. I, uh, well, I'd also, I'd also rather have him have a wash in this than have him walk away from a negative one in episode one. Fair enough. Uh, I'm going to give a point to the smoke monster because he's just off camera. He's in that scene. <gasps> he is all over that scene. Uh, the man in black, who I, I just call him the smoke monster. This is easier for me. The monster. He is one. Uh, and he's just off camera and he is... It's him, you know, doing like the Iago thing, whispering in Albert's ear, telling him to go talk to me. Come on, Jafar, go talk to me. <laughs> yeah, that's what I meant for sure. I'm bolting. Uh, you know, that he's he's uh, he's whispering, mini-monstering to Richard Albert here. This is the beginning of the long con of season five, and I love it so much uh, that mm. I, I am uh, I'm I'm uh, I have no choice. I also think the smoke monster might also be a big candidate for season five MVP as well. Because again, like you talked about this before, this is peak smokes monster where he essentially is going to get what he wants as fake John Locke for essentially the majority of season five. And so if we, if he gets a point, basically every episode, John Locke does something back on the Island. That's really going to add up. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I don't know. I, I think Smoke Monster is a real MVP candidate for season five. And so I've got one more. And speaking of MVP candidates, let me give it to one who is the leader in the clubhouse right now, and will continue to extend that lead. I got to give it to Saeed Jarrah because he's a freaking badass yep. in this premiere. He's gonna, he's gonna get put out of commission for a while since he's been tranked. But even being tranked, not the X Men character that I referenced a few episodes ago, uh, he he kicked a lot of ass. So I'm gonna give him some credit here. Assassin Saeed is awesome. I, you know, if you hadn't gotten to him first, I think I probably would have given Saeed a point as well. Uh, it's just an awesome fight scene and so impressive that he has tranquilizer coursing through his veins and he is still able to flip a dude onto some dirty dishes and kill him. Um, LVPs already gave one to Richard Alpert. Who do you got, Mike? I'm going to give one to Charles Winmore here. And this is sort of like the parallel of Smokey just being off screen. And we do see Charles Winmore briefly for one screen where he's rude, right? He detains Sun with TSA to be like, what do you want with me? You'll just, you'll very much disturb me at my meeting of big, important businessmen. But also, uh, much like we did in a season four, I'm going to give him the credit for like hiring guys that somehow allowed Saeed Jarrah to outnumber them and dispatch with them pretty embarrassingly. Yeah. Right. I, that, that falls onto Charles Widmore for me. Yeah. Uh, no, I think that that's, that's fine. I, there's, it's a lack of choice in this one. I mean, we could just like toss it all onto law and order, right? Like we could just yeah, give so that, it that's, all. That's what my other one's going to Noonan and, and, and Agostini. <laughs> yeah, are gonna get sure. It here. Sure. Like that's fine. I, I could lump on that too. I'll split mine though. I'll, I'll go with Froger cause he sucks. And anytime he's on the show, I'll give I'll, I'll take the chance to take a shot with flaming arrows at him. Uh, and then I would talk myself into an Ethan LVP. Like, yeah, he doesn't recognize Locke. Come on. This is, I wonder if this is the first time, Josh, we have a dudes only MVP LVP. All of our candidates here are all dudes. Yeah, off the jump. Here we are in season five, and it is uh, it is it is dude it is dude fest two uh, K seven. Uh, <laughs> I love that video game. <laughs> this is who we've got. This is what it looks like right now. Four-way tie for first place. Faraday, Sawyer, Smokey, and Saeed. Uh, Alpert's a wash. Widmore, Froger, Ethan, and Law and Order with negative ones. So that's the start. 
to to season five next week mike the lie yeah so okay so this is the one with the flaming arrows if i'm going back to my friends naming conventions I right this that's is, right yeah this is the one where we say goodbye to many 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 of the gawkers uh i think this is when Locke's finally gonna run into our main group and then i believe off island i think this is where uh kate and son are going to come together. Crowley's going to throw a hot pocket at Ben. He's going to have a really great scene with his mother, who I cannot imagine. uh, She's going to get an MVP point next week for sure. That would be very hard to imagine she doesn't. Or David Reyes might as well, right? Because he's going to, he, he, he covers for them too. Cause that's going to be sort of Hurley's adventure as a fugitive. And it's going to end with Josh, uh, an ending that you and I once upon a time put into a survivor season, right? Where Eloise Hawking is revealed to be one of the people behind their adventures to get back onto the island. Excellent ending, uh, for sure. Uh, so that's the lie that's coming up next week. Get your feedback in down the hatch at post show recaps. Dot com that podcast drops in the down the hatch feed on may 21st but it's going to arrive may 19th for the patrons of post show recap <laughs> just like Locke and ben were arriving a little early on yes, the feed <laughs> yes uh comes a little bit early for the patrons of post show recaps consider signing up patreon.com slash post show recaps coming up signing up for patreon.com slash post that patreon.com slash post show recaps how about that it got the word and, and, and that reminds me actually i believe we're gonna see some ghost anna lucia next week too yes uh i believe that's correct uh do we see michelle yeah 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 because she uh she pulls him over i think while they're driving oh, away oh right yep that's correct that's correct uh so that's gonna be really fun uh really looking forward to hopping into it send in your feedback down the hatchet post show recaps dot com mike bloom what do you got going on outside of lost so uh, outside of lost the bloom files is humming along strongly we're more than halfway through season four we're tackling a big episode apparently memento mori i have not seen it yet but also we just did two other big episodes musings of a cigarette smoking man and paper hearts two incredibly dark episodes around killers so i guess this really got me in the saeed headspace so be sure to check that out as well as my continued coverage from the preseason of survivor south africa and maybe some other stuff in the interim who's to say Hmm. okay cool uh so we've got a lot going on here on Posha recaps of course whether it's down the hatch the bloom files aforementioned everything is superman we're talking superman on the everything is super feed we also dropped uh, a bonus Everything is Super podcast, which Kevin Mahadeo and I are calling an Everything is Super One Shot, where we talked about Amazon's Invincible. So if that's a show that you liked and you want to hear uh, me and the great Kevin Mahadeo talk about that show, you can sign up for Patreon.com slash recaps. Listen to that podcast, Final Fantasy, and in there, so many things happening at once here there's the walking dead stuff as well it's just a big tech community building there's just so much happening on post show recaps here in the month of may uh how happy are you that we discovered the drillman i'm so happy that this man is going to follow us through the timeline and then eventually that we turned him from a one-line throwaway worker into apparently an omnipotent god that supersedes Jacob and the Man in yeah. Black, who does not live in time. He is the Drillman. He is now part of our own lives. If you excuse me, I'm going to now build a Alvin Drillman. Yeah, I'm going to build a brother, shrine right? to him in the corner. Was he at the triplet? Uh, I don't know. Uh, there's Kelvin. There's Inman, and then there's Drillman. Yeah, that's right. 
I think we're going to get a lot of mileage out of the out of Saul Drillman this season. Uh, there's a very important drill deeper into the season. That's true. So. <laughs> yeah. Listen, my heart is melting just like those carbon rods. Yeah, absolutely. All right. We'll be back next week with more Down the Hatch. Until then, everybody, take care. Bye-bye. Four, eight, fifteen, sixteen, twenty-four, eight, fifteen, sixteen, twenty-four, eight, fifteen, sixteen, twenty-four, eight, fifteen, sixteen, twenty-four.